0: Just go to Indeed.com slash wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: This is the Gator Nation football podcast with your hosts Alan Williams and James DeBergillian.
0: This place is an
2: the oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know?
3: Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James D. Virgilio, alongside Alan Williams. And here we are, Alan. Another week. Every time I think to myself, I'm going to get to come in next week. We're going to talk about these sort of meta thoughts. We're not going to have to get so granular into the game and really analyze what's going on to explain what's happening and answer big questions. I'm wrong. We're presented with a scenario where we barely escape a win against USF. And then on top of that, Alan, there's a lot of things that we have to look at in this game before we can even talk about my favorite week, which is Tennessee week. So lots to take care of on today's show.
1: For sure. Never... A boring week around gator nation yeah that game was something else a lot of emotions a lot of unexpected outcomes
3: so yeah we're gonna get into all of it. it'll be good it's gonna be great and again it is my favorite week we have here in studio with us little peyton whose record against tennessee is quite illustrious he's feeling confident because he always does feel confident however I can't say that I'm feeling nearly as confident. Just staring
1: into little Peyton's eyes and, and I'm looking at confidence. him and he's
3: trying to give me confidence and, and I'm trying to get my excitement level to where it needs to be. Uh, but it's hard to be where I want to be for this week. And I am going to be going to the Tennessee game, but I do love this week. I love Florida, Tennessee college game day. Of course we'll be there 3 30 PM. Uh, everything feels right except for Florida's football program. <laughs> and we'll try to explain what's going on with that in this episode. As always, if you like the content follow us on social media, Sub to our YouTube channel where I break down film each week on Florida's opponent and become a patron on Patreon where you too can give a dono of any level and any amount and we will give you some love on each ep like we are about to do. Shout out as always to B-Red who's back in the saddle being our producer preparing our document for the show and Carly the commissioner out there in Colorado doing her thing editing the YouTube videos. And a reminder that for LSU, we will be having our GNFP meetup weekend Friday night at First Magnitude. We will continue to post our link on social where you can RSVP for this free event. The RSVP just allows us to make sure we have enough space to accommodate all of you. All right, Alan, we did have some new donos this past week. A small dono comes in from Clay. What up, Clay? Clay welcome aboard. A level up from Boom Headshot. Uh good to see him back on the on the ledger here. Clint Patterson comes in with a large dono as a new dono aboard Very nice. A level up from the Moore family, who's giving an extra dollar or so every time the Gators win. Of course, wrote in, woof, a win's a <laughs> win, doesn't feel like it. And then James Ridge coming in hot as a new uh patron with an XL dono. Thanks, James. Welcome aboard. Great name. And then a level up from the ever-illustrious Jamie Galliano, who's upping the ante $10 per every win the Gators have. And, of course, same message from him. Doesn't really feel like a win, but here we go. Still sitting on the throne is Guy Tumbleson. If that is indeed Guy's real name, the Gators are tumbling. So we need Tumbleson to channel some magic here and turn us in the right direction. All right, Alan, read out some of our legends, those who have given... $500 $500 more in total support or basically have given us a significant gift when we started and we were just little babies in this podcasting.
1: World. For sure. Before that, I know there's some new people here to the pod and probably going, What? why do they keep saying the word dono? That goes way, way back inside joke here to the Gator Nation football podcast family. So yeah, we know it's silly, but indulge us. All right, let's start with the former Kings and Queens. Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, the big homie, Lil' Peyton. Here he is. Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery. And Craig Scarado. All right. Little recap here. The Gators do win 31-28. Survive narrowly. The keys to the game are kind of funny. Um, <laughs> on offense, James wanted to see
3: AR progress. In parentheses, B-Red has it. Nope. Well, I actually put nope in oh, there. You put nope in but there? He did. He did technically progress from where he was the previous week, but he did not progress overall.
1: Uh, that the linebackers and safeties would have less than three blown assignments. I think we can
3: chalk that up to an L. And really there. just strong safety. Strong safety, there you Torrence go. is right. That's Dean. I just didn't want to put Dean out there because we have to call him out so often. And uh, although in the passing game we didn't really blow assignments per se, uh, certainly in the run game we had a lot of issues and the linebackers Blue, too many to count almost all of them, yeah. If you want to put it that way, so that was a huge fail. And not surprisingly, these keys to the game should be good because if we fail them, we should be in jeopardy, yeah. And especially uh, if you fail
1: them as we were in dramatically. Jeopardy. We were, yeah, we were talking about blown assignments in the passing game, right? And that really wasn't what got tracked nope. significantly. So, nope. All right, I wanted to see a rather pedestrian 125 of air yards. Didn't make that, of course. No, seventy-four is what we recorded. And I was a little worried about chunk yard chunk plays by the tight ends. That's like a you know, play of wherever it's kind of arbitrary, but fifteen to twenty yards there. They didn't have any of those. They didn't really even look at their tight ends because they didn't have to. Maybe they should have thrown it a few times, maybe that would've helped them. But uh, obviously just gash Florida on the ground. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh you predicted forty eight to thirteen
3: that wasn't quite right. Wow. That's one of my worst predictions of all time, I think, on the podcast.
1: Yeah, so I tried to so far. Off. Yeah, I tried to middle it a little bit, but still came kind of close. I predicted 30 to 17, we won 31-28. Yeah, I think we both vastly underestimated USF's ability to move the ball.
3: I want to say that I overestimated Florida's ability to beat an inferior opponent. Sure. That's what I want to say for the record. But we'll talk more about that. I mean, I know that Billy Napier has sung USS praises, and I know he's really good friends with their coach and that he's talked about how great they are. I'm not going to buy that. They're better than they were a couple years ago. They're not a great football team. They looked great because of all the things we did in this game. And we'll talk about whether that's on coaching or personnel or whatever. But in general, this is still a story of Florida being its own worst enemy in this football game.
1: Very much so. So my first question here for us is did it feel like a win to you? And I'll just talk first here. I you know, looking around the college football landscape, I th- I think I want to say yes. Like I'll take the win. Arkansas barely survives Bobby Petrino and Missouri State. Kansas State does not survive their game. Yeah, Texas A&M losing to App State last week. I I think when you're in the Nascent period of a program, you want these wins when you're on the way up, right? Uh, you you have to take them because you're you're not there yet, and a loss feels way worse. Now, if you're later on in a program, it's like, man, I don't even know. If you're like Georgia and you like did this, you'd be like, this feels just as bad as a loss. So we're we're close to that because we are a better program theoretically, much more so talent wise, but. I still feel like at this point in the Napier regime, we have to just take the win and like be thankful for it.
3: Yeah, it is a win and it felt like a win. Uh, And that does not mean I celebrated the win. (laughs) (laughs) Went home feeling like we did something great, but it's always better to win than to lose. But it is not something where you bury your head in the sand and say, a win is a win. A win is not a win in the sense of how that word and phrase is used. But. A win is not a loss, and that's something that you want, right? 20 years from now, we're not going to have to say Florida lost to USF like we do about a bunch of other bad losses this program has had in the past 10 or so years, and that is a win in and of itself, but certainly not encouraging not what anyone wanted. But I felt much better going home after the game with a win than I would have felt with a loss. For sure. That is significant. And
1: Florida losing to UCF and USF in the span of a couple months would have just not been fun.
3: No, not fun at all. And in all reality, we, we should have lost to USF. We escaped, like we said earlier, with a win. And I'll be thankful for that because... Even really good teams often have to escape with wins sometimes. Florida's not a really good team, but you'll still take escaping with the win, especially as you mentioned. This is year one, week three of a new regime. It's much, much, much better to get that win on your stat sheet. That will mean potentially a lot at the end of the year. For sure. And, you know, again, I'm not
1: into hey, whatever, we won the game, that's all that matters, rah, rah, right? So this is what I also appreciate about Napier's, both his halftime and post game comments. He's very clear-eyed about where the program is. He wasn't trying to sugarcoat it at all. He did want to compliment USF and say, hey, they're a good team that played well today. But he was also quick to say Florida's basically failing at their assignments on like every level on defense and not, obviously have not figured out everything on offense either. So, I don't think it. he's being myopic or anything. I think he understands where the program is right now and what the mistakes that need to be fixed. And, and you know, he's talking about it's about fixing them. And uh, so at least I, I feel like the coaching staff has a beat on that. There is something wrong. Not like, I don't know. We're just kind of doing what we're doing. We hope it's going to work.
3: Yeah, Napier gives direct answers to these questions. In his Monday presser, he obviously gave direct answers to what was going on. He has a feel for what's happening. Like any coach with a young, young team, and he, he tips his hand, which is nice. He's very transparent. You know, he said they played 44 freshman or first-year players into the program on Saturday. It's not the time yet where you can be Nick Saban. And I always want to be Nick Saban where it's like, here's what we're going to do. Here's what I'm not going to tolerate. And if you don't do it, I'm benching you for the guy behind you. He has to navigate the cards that are in his hand right now with player XYZ versus a younger, better, more talented player who doesn't know what he's doing yet. And I think often as fans, and I I hear this a lot in the stadium, people really don't appreciate Alan, how much time it takes to learn to play college football. The transition from high school to college at certain positions is significant. It is not easy. It is not something that can be done quickly. That's not an excuse for what happened, as you're going to hear me give my, my thoughts on this game as we unpack it. But in general, I do think that what Napier is saying in his press conference this week is not what's going to happen in year three. The expectations will be raised. The level of tolerance for mental mistakes will be pretty much zero. But you just can't do it when you're starting to build a culture and you're having to deal with players who have not lived in that culture, have not had to live under that expectation yet. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, And we'll talk again about what we are seeing happen quickly versus what we're not. So I think as press conferences, as post-game things, it's great, right? We're not having to do what we did with Mullen, where it's like, why would you say this? What are you doing? You're out of touch with it. But Napier is still a football coach and he's still going to, when he meets with the media... Give you comments he probably wouldn't give you if he was his best friend. If you're Napier's best friend, he probably sure. called you on Saturday night and said that sucked, right? That is not how I ever want to win. I don't like that. That was uncomfortable. I hated it. It has to get better. But to the media, he's going to go out and say, "Hey, the team fought hard. They didn't quit. They dug deep. They showed character. They found a way to win." But that's not how he feels. But that's also what you have to do when you're dealing with eighteen to twenty-two year olds. A lot of them who are still fragile in their own confidence level to the media. What he says to them behind closed doors is not going to be that. What he has in the film room is not going to be that, right? So just keep in mind that any coach in the media is going to be somewhat different. Now, I know all of us are super spoiled with Steve Spurrier, obviously, but there's one Steve Spurrier. Almost no one true to the media like Spurrier did. But so far, Napier, I think, has been transparent, authentic, and, and something you can— you can take from his press conferences is is something that's real versus, you know, in the past where it was like, you're just making stuff up and saying whatever you want. So I think the headlines from this game are the Gators come
1: out of this with more question marks than answers. And I began, I think we went into this game worried about AR, right? He had had two data points, one where he looked great, one where he looked abysmal. Those were very, very far apart. And the next data point was going to be really important. Was it going to move him closer to one or the other? So I think that's what most of us were focused on. But leaving here, the defense has created a lot of question marks about itself as well. Um, Did you leave the game more worried about AR or the defense?
3: I think AR still, because we knew, we knew, we knew it, right? The linebackers, we talked about it before the year. We talked about it leading into this week. We've talked about it. We, have missed on recruiting for years at linebacker, which you've been chronicling really well at the misfit linebacker play that we've done. Uh, Dan Mullen and Grantham and his staff have done Florida a massive disservice with the linebacker position in general. We, we talked about what we would have done firing coaches so many years ago. And this is the fruit we're bearing now. We have some athletic guys that have no idea how to play linebacker. And we lost Hopper, who was a sensational linebacker, because of a family issue where he basically, from what I've heard, kind of had to go to Missouri, right? Uh, either way, he's not here. And so Hopper was a the guy they recruited, and Hopper is a baller. Hopper's an all-SEC caliber linebacker stuck on a bad football team. If Florida had Hopper, it's a different story. So it's not, let's not forget we would have had him. We don't have him. But without him, Allen, we're in a wasteland of young guys who are playing the hardest position to play on defense. That's the hardest one. That's the quarterback of the defense. Ventrell goes down. We have no middle linebacker. You have to be the quarterback. Well, how can you be the quarterback when you're barely even learning how to read where you run to? And I'm going to break that down a little bit later. So AR, on the other hand, though, was supposed to be the, the guy that was worth three or four wins. We said that we had to have him. Otherwise, we might lose a lot more games. And now he is still not a quarterback. He's a running back. When I went to high school, I didn't play quarterback for my high school because we ran the wishbone veer and we threw the ball exactly one time a game. And it was like a hail Mary bomb just to keep the defense quote honest, right? Then we're never going to pass. So we don't have a quarterback right now. We have a broken quarterback when it comes to a passing game and you're not going to win football games in the sec with a one dimensional running game. It's not going to happen. So that's a problem. The defense is expected. AR is unexpected. AR impacts the future much more so than where we are with defense, where I know that's going to get better over time. Maybe not this year, but it's going to get better. So they're both big problems. But I think the AR one is the one that if it doesn't get fixed, now you're really asking questions of what the next year, this year and the next year even look like. And then you have to ask yourself really tough questions about, you know, should you bench AR? Should you try Jack Miller? Should you try anyone else? And we'll talk about that stuff too. So for me, it's AR. How about you? Yeah, you know, I don't know. On one hand, it feels like AR could just,
1: in a moment, be better, right? there's there's less structural issues with him than there are with the defense. This is systemic, right? That without Ventrell Miller, I don't know if we can stop anybody running the ball, and that feels crazy to say. We're like right back where we were last year, where teams are just gashing us with simple run designs over and over again. And it feels like we have no hope of stopping them. That's a bad feeling. So I don't know, maybe equal in some sense, but maybe tilting towards the defense a little bit. Cause it still feels like there's some things that work on offense, even without AR. I don't defensively against the team, a very limited team like USF overall. They're not, they're not a juggernaut offensively. feels like we couldn't figure it out. So maybe both is my answer. Um, yeah, well, there's a lot of questions about Billy's offense, right? That it's not optimized where we want it to be. Um, you know, this is an interesting coaching question here, right? So Florida has two offensive line coaches, which is rare, but it's kind of some fun ideas to it. But that only leaves one coach for the QB and the OC, which is Billy Napier, who's also the head coach. And there's some analysts who are working with the quarterbacks, and I'm sure an army of analysts who are working with him in the offensive coordinator kind of-ish roles. Does that feel like a mistake right now?
3: Well, yes, because here's the thing, right? You typically have on staff an offensive coordinator who's also your quarterback's coach. That's the most normal thing. Sometimes you have an offensive coordinator and a quarterback's coach because the offensive coordinator might do something different receivers, whatever his background is. But typically, normally, quarterback's coach and your offensive coordinator is one and the same. When your head coach is the offensive coordinator and the quarterback coach and the coach, that's a lot. A lot of times in that scenario, you then employ a QB coach. And then you are the offensive coordinator, but you have a QB coach. That's, of course, what Dan Mullen, Mullen did, yeah. did. And that's also what most, including in the NFL, what most you know consider your favorite play calling guru will do. So Billy Napier is flying pretty much solo on this idea that he's going to be the QB coach, the offensive coordinator, and the head coach. And I want to talk more about that after we talk about USF, because I think that's a really big topic that we're going to have to follow That's an emerging topic. It's one we brought up early on, right? We talked about when Billy Napier got hired. He's not known, and you can find this on our Napier podcast, right? He's not known as an offensive wizard. He's not an offensive genius. Nobody holds him out to be a schematic kind of brilliant play-calling guy. He got fired at Clemson his first year being an OC. That was many, many years ago. Never was an OC again until he was a head coach where he made himself OC. So I think there's a little bit of a chip on Billy's shoulder. I think he believes he's a good offensive play caller. I think he believes in what he does. I think a lot of other coaching staffs don't believe he's great at that. And so this might be, this might be a chink in his armor where it's it's the one place where he maybe, and I'm saying maybe because I don't know yet. This is way too early, right? Early returns here in week three. He maybe, Alan, is not self-aware that this is a weakness for him, potentially. What I want to say before we get into the granular part is Billy Napier's run game, his ability to be a run game coordinator his ability to call plays in the run game, his ability to design plays in the run game is top level. Fantastic stuff in the run game. He's excellent. He understands it. He gets it. What he's put on film so far, three games into his regime here at Florida in the passing game is regressive, outdated, and suboptimal. And that's putting it kindly. It's not good offensive football passing wise. It's not anything I like. It's not modern. It's not at all impressive and if you're another football coach i think you'd roll the tape and say nothing about that is modern football in the passing game it's too early to say whether or not this is what billy's passing offense is going to look like but it is worth discussing because i know everyone's thinking it so we're going to follow that story throughout the year and of course right now i'm going to say this people asked me over the weekend should billy you know hire a QB coach and an offensive coordinator or both or one or the other or all or whatever. And the answer right now is, it's too soon to tell, but keep in mind that he's on his own Island doing this. He's not getting, he's getting horrible results, right? No passing touchdowns through three games at Florida, a passing school, a school where fans expect to throw the ball through the air. No touchdowns through three games. That's not tenable in the long run. That's not going to work. Everything else he's doing so far Seems to be in the large meta narrative pretty solid. That seems to be a major weakness. So yeah. we got to follow that line. We so, got to follow that storyline. It's early. I don't want. I don't want any of you to think you've got the answer to that question yet, because it will be too early to say definitively whether that should or shouldn't happen.
1: Agreed. And just to kind of go back to what you said about his reputation when we first discussed him on the pod, I think I made some comment about well, he's not basically like. He's not the offensive coordinator, but it's like, wait, no, he is. All anyone talks about him is, is as a head coach, as a program builder. I knew he had an offensive background, obviously, but that that's kind of significant, right? Not that they're ineffective or bad on offense, I think, but... That I think that starts to tell the story a little bit, but I also want to give him a lot of latitude right now. We talked about the defense being in year one, this offense in year one. He also has a quarterback who, midway through the game, stops being able to throw any kind of passes. So, what does that mean for him or about what he feels capable of calling? Who knows, right? We need a lot more data on this, but it is something to track. Um, also, just to get this out there, we you know, there's a lot of conjecture about. Richardson, is he hurt, right? Because Florida's he's not running very much. There's That's been a major, major narrative. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, did he get hurt in the Kentucky game? Did he get hurt this past week? Is he hurt another time? Seems like there's a decent amount of smoke here that on some level, he's not peak physically in his lower body.
3: Would you agree with that? That That's maybe an assumption we can make, or I don't know. Yeah, I think on the podcast we can confirm definitively from, quote, inside sources, which is always so fun to say, <laughs> mythical inside sources, but we can confirm definitively that he's had a, you know, a slight injury to his lower body after the Utah game, before the Kentucky game in practice. I don't know what that injury is. If I had to guess, I'd say tweaked hamstring. And therefore, they don't want him to be opening it up and pulling it because we already know he's done it before, right? And hamstrings can be six to eight weak things, and they can also be recurring. Hamstrings don't always heal super well. There's something that are a little scary for an elite athlete that can produce the force AR can. And again, I'm speculating. It may not yeah, be Yeah, total a conjecture. Could be an ankle. But on film, looks like a guy who doesn't want to open up the gate. So that, that's another big reason why... Perhaps this staff Allen doesn't want to run him as much. And perhaps why he looks like all of a sudden he's an average athlete out there, which he looked like against USF too. It didn't look like he could even get away from a lot of those guys like he usually did. Right. Um, so that's good news. If you're in the camp that, Hey, he's been hurt. Good news is that he has been at some level, but it certainly has not been anything that anyone's going to say is an injury. Napier himself is you know, going to come out and say, you know, nothing, which I like that. I don't think you want to give your quarterback excuses, But here's what matters to me on the YouTube channel. i got a lot of questions saying, do you think whatever's happening to him is affecting his ability to throw? No, no, it is not. And it's not a significant enough injury where he can't throw the football somewhere or make things happen. He's got plenty to do that. Maybe his mindset's a little bit messed up or he's, or, you know, when you play hurt, you may, you might think about not hurting yourself more, right? Those are all real things. So is it affecting him? Absolutely. Is it the reason for why these performances are so bottom level No, but take that as some hope for you that that injury is one that they expect to get better. They've been monitoring it and they've been, you know, let's say treating him with a sort of conservative game plan before they maybe unleash him. Maybe this week, if he's healthy enough, who knows against Tennessee and we get a much more aggressive and healthy AR. I don't know the answer to that question, but there has been confirmed some sort of slight
1: Wanted to bring that up because that's what we've been hearing. But I think to bring some clarity about what we're going to talk about next, which is that might dictate some of the play calling or maybe some of the things about how he's operating physically, but is probably not affecting him throwing the ball, which are two different kinds of things. May, you know, it could be a little bit related, but that that's not what shows up on film at least. Okay. Let's talk about the Florida offense, right? <laughs> Very interesting effort from them. Uh, some really good, some really bad. 332 yards of offense, 220 rushing, which is a great output. 116 yards passing so 8.1 yards per rush two picks uh those were tough uh three of eight on third down so ar himself 10 of 18 for 112 yards seven carries 24 yards uh the running backs notable numbers here montreal johnson had a tremendous game 103 yards and one td uh i should have this in front of me but only on a very few carries there, averaging a crazy amount ETN, 56 yards, one TD. Nick Naquan Wright, six carries, 31, 37 yards, one TD. Only one sack allowed. No fourth downs here to talk about this week. Two or three in the red zone. So the first half Florida goes field goal, touchdown, touchdown. And then I believe in the second half it's interception, punt, punt, interception before finally punching in for that last touchdown. Okay. Um, I want to talk about good AR versus bad AR. So I feel like this has been true in, in both games, right? So even in the Kentucky game, there was moments where he throws a nice ball or he's just a little bit off. We talked about this where uh, made a nice read is just a little bit off on the ball placement to Pierce Hall or something like that. Looks fine. He'll figure it out until he doesn't. He starts making the worst kind of errors you could possibly make and seemingly can't throw anything. A little bit similar to this game, right? There's some nice balls in the first half. Florida's moving the ball. It's not great. It's not perfect, but hey, effective. Then all of a sudden in the second half, more bad AR, or it looks like he can't do anything right again. So glimpses of both. Yeah, we've talked about this a little bit, but do you think this is more mental or physical as to
3: why he flips back and forth in these games? I think the mental is leading now to the physical. And on film, on the film review, which yeah, is, sorry,
1: what I mean by physical is not the injury talked about, but like
3: yeah, bad footwork, action, actual, bad, right, right. Yeah. And so on, on the film review, which comes out on Tuesdays uh, each week. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna display that pretty prominently. Of course, I've already I've already recorded it, so I can say what's on there. Uh, but his fundamentals are regressing, and they did not progress into this week. Uh, he, he is now displaying things that he had not put on film before, and that's what concerned me so much about last week's performance is you're seeing things that I've never seen him do before, and and that's that's bad, right? He's gone from, this is a really fundamental quarterback. He, he He's quick to make his reads. He keeps his feet underneath him. He drives down through the ball. He doesn't hold on too long. His timing is really solid to all those things aren't true anymore. On half the plays, his footwork is bad. He holds onto the ball too long. He's got a, He's developing a hitch now where he's, he's hitching the ball a few times before he throws it. He's throwing late. He's throwing late over the middle. He's slow to make his reads. He doesn't come off his first read. These are all signs, in my opinion, Allen, of mental, obviously, distress and a lack of confidence in what's happening. I can tell you why that is as far as my thesis goes. I can't tell you for sure, but I can tell you what I think it is. And that's something that affects a lot of quarterbacks. And that's that's this. The structure of Napier's offense, obviously, is heavy run. Fine, not a problem. It's also heavy play action where the quarterback turns his back to the field. Now, if you followed the NFL for any given time, one of the major concerns that NFL scouts and coaches have for college quarterbacks that have not run under center or in a play action-based offense is they worry about what happens to them when they have to learn how to basically not see the field anymore, fake the handoff, turn back around. And now they have no idea where the defense went. It's a whole new picture. Now in the NFL, this is kind of crazy because whatever you saw earlier might be way different in college. It will still be somewhat different. It seems like that is for lack of a better word, broken AR's ability to play quarterback. He is wildly uncomfortable with it. He has no idea what he's doing. And he I, I'm going to use a strong word here. I think that he hates it. Whereas when you put him in the spread, And you give him space and you put even like a 12, you know, 11 personnel with three receivers or 10 personnel with four receivers. When you spread the field out, his reads generally, he flips back sort of to the AR we've seen before on film where he looks downfield makes a quick read is decisive. But even now on those plays, there's some of them where he is letting other things bleed in. So what I'm saying is I think. His adjustment to an offense that requires him to turn his shoulders and turn his back on the defense and then get a new picture is now bleeding over into every throw he's making. He's losing confidence in what he sees on the field. The pictures he used to see that made sense do not make sense anymore. And he's not even trusting the most basic of his throws. Napier said he played a great, a great half in the first half. That's just film wise. Not true. Napier's not lying. The results were nice field goal, touchdown, touchdown, but the throws were late even easy throws. And a simple one is, is he throws a hitch route to Ricky and that hitch route was thrown at least a full second too late, despite the fact that he does everything right in the beginning, looks off the safety, looks low, looks at him, hitches, hitches, then throws. He's wide open. He just isn't comfortable throwing counter that Alan with the good AR his best throw the day by far, which are, which is what we pretty much saw on film all last year, even when things didn't go right was the corner route that he threw to Ricky, that was an absolute dime. He comes out, great throw. It's a three-step drop, hits his back foot, immediately climbs down and just nails it. He also reads the field perfectly. He reads safety, the two-on-one corner, throws the corner route. That's the AR that I saw on film last year. It's the same AR I said, look, this guy can read the field and throw. But what we didn't know, and we asked this question leading up to this season, is how does AR respond to this offense? And I described this as a quarterback-friendly offense because there are far fewer reads. That is true. There are far fewer reads. However, as best I can tell, he hates this play action system. He also is very uncomfortable with these bunch sets that Billy Napier employs. The field is shrunk almost in half for him, right? And I'm going to talk about that later um, when we get further into this film review. But that, I think, is also causing him major problems. He's just not comfortable with Billy's offense. And now it's flowing into all of his game. Is it too late to stop and save this? I don't think so. But I'm also not sure that Napier is going to switch the offense around for for AR. I don't know he's that kind of coach. We're going to talk about that when we get to the final thoughts of this game. That's a really big question to ask. But right now, the mental is influencing the physical. The physical is now starting to regress and break down. And AR no longer trusts himself. So something that felt comfortable to him and felt good does not feel comfortable. And it's clear as day on film. He's uncomfortable running the offense.
1: So this is what's interesting about the narrative surrounding AR. And I've... I've read a lot of stuff, and you listen to people. It's like they got to let him run. He's he's not a throwing quarterback. He's a running quarterback, and that's just not jibes with what we had seen previously. I mean, he has had a few, only a few starts, but he played in a decent number of games last year, right? We saw him in the second half of LSU. We saw him against Florida State. We'd seen him play some, and not that he couldn't run. Obviously, he's an electric runner. But he had the tools to be a high-level passer. That's why he was. we were so enamored of him. And he still can do those things, but that's what's been so... I don't know if infuriating is the right word, baffling or discouraging, is that he's totally flipped out of that. And maybe for the reasons you said, I think that's a really good working theory. That if you're used to just taking a shotgun snap, maybe doing a fake handoff where you're not, you're never looking away really from down the field to turning, having to snap your head back around and get your eyes back where everyone is supposed to be. And then once you start to lose confidence, those things, those dominoes keep moving. It's really tough. So yes, I, I think there are things that you can fix. It's much harder to rebuild someone's confidence. You don't like flip it around like that potentially so, man, we're in a tough spot with him because, again, his ceiling is still so high. He still will put a few of those throws on film every week where you're like, well, this guy has it. He can do everything. And then he does some things that make you say, have you ever played quarterback before? Why did you do that? And I want to talk about why he doesn't run more, right? So, this has been every. And so, if you're watching the broadcast, Jordan Rogers was like, he even said he was like a broken record. They've got to run him more. Um, I don't disagree with that, but I don't, I don't think it's as simple as just just run him more. right? The stuff that this staff, I think, has preferred to do to get him out on the edge, rolling him out in these bootlegs, which was really effective week one. We talked about, is that sustainable? It hasn't been. Teams are defending that, running straight at him. It's really messing with them. We don't have a lot of zone read stuff in our playbook. Of course, we have some of it. We ran against Utah. It doesn't seem like that's their preferred, that takes them out of their preferred running style. So there's not like easy answers. This is not the spread, Dan Mullen, just run him more. Uh, again, again, there's the injury concerns, there's the depth chart concerns, but I don't think the solution is as simple as that. Now, we talked last week about, hey, you got to let him get hit, let him move with the ball. Anything. Any other countervailing theories or anything else you want to add to that discussion?
3: Well, I think if you want to run the ball with him, you have to be able to pass the ball. And that's what's getting lost in this situation is teams are building out their defense to stop him from running. Specifically, two two his right. The more concerning part for this is that USF played only two snaps in man defense. Two. So now that means that through these past two weeks of football, virtually every single style of pass coverage defense has worked against Anthony Richardson. All of them have been successful. And that is a complete breakdown from a quarterback, right? That's bad. We started off the year saying if if you play zone, and this was true with Utah, Utah played zone. He shredded them, shredded them. Utah is a sound zone team outside of Diabate, And now you get USF out there playing zone and look, they've got a linebacker. Number 11 was sensational on film. I would take him right now and start him over anyone Florida has. He was fantastic, but he's one guy and we're lost. So that's a problem. And then again, running the football, if a team is going to scheme you to say you can't run the football with your quarterback. Right. You're not going to be able to run the football with your quarterback. That's how football works. It doesn't matter what you do. You can run them 25 times. Not a lot of good stuff is going to happen. They're keyed up to stop him from running the ball. They were literally making sure he cannot run the football. Right. The so entire just, game plan is built on that. That's so, why I
1: feel silly to say just run him more. You can, not but the like reason
3: that. that Mullen was successful to a large degree with this, and again, even then, it wasn't perfect. Once teams figured out that Emory Jones couldn't throw, Emory Jones couldn't run anymore. Couldn't do it. We talked about it. There was no more running for Emory Jones, right? Even as good as Dan Mullen was at scheming stuff up for that, it doesn't work if you cannot pass the football. So the bottom line is, could we try to run him more? Yes. Would we try to run him more? If, obviously, there was an an ability to do so with his health? I think so. But I still think this comes down to what I want to talk about. Not quite yet. I want to save it when we get through the whole film stuff. But kind of the where do we go from here strategy with offensive play design. There are things Florida can do, I think, to vastly improve this offense right now. But that requires a deviation from what Napier does Typically. Now we implored Mullen to do this, and Mullen did it, not because we implored him to do it. Mullen also was was, you know, originally a, a very tight system guy, ran pretty much the same stuff, had to adopt a trask. Mullen obviously knows a ton about offensive football, right? And he did it though. He did it. He did stuff that was not in his wheelhouse. And the same thing now has to be asked of Napier, at least in year one here, if you want to win with AR as your quarterback, or perhaps it's going to be how to find someone else to be the trigger man. Uh, because there are things I think that Florida can do to take advantage of AR, to build this offense around AR, to do what an NFL team would do. If you draft a guy, you have to be smart and put him in something that's going to work for him. And right now, this is not working for him. There's things that can be done, and 'm going to save the things that can be done for the end. But to your point, Alan, it's not as simple as just keeping this offense the way that it is and running him. You're going to have to change some things and then run him and then do some other stuff, but you cannot just run him out of this 12 personnel bunch so that offense, teams are keyed up all over it. They're taking that stuff away. It's not going to be dynamic.
1: Right. I think if you'd have got a lot more Anthony Richardson runs, it'd just been like, cool. We had a lot more plays that didn't go anywhere. Yeah, he had
3: seven carries for like 24 yards, so he wasn't going anywhere. Um.
1: All right. Let's talk about something good from this game. The running game looked great as expected. Now, we talked about USF being just abysmal at stopping the run. They were in this game as well. Florida ran everywhere they wanted to. For the most part, the running backs looked great. Generally, Naquan looked better than he has. Again, that's you know up against USF. Montreal just cut them up. I mean, they couldn't stop him. Uh, I'm going to get to carry distribution here in a second, but uh, Etienne, not as special as he maybe looked the week before, but he was really effective. Anything you want to add to about about why they were effective? specific other than they're just able to execute and usf sucks
3: i mean same thing we've said before montrell is the best zone runner he's perfect but this is this is key and i'm going to launch into something that i've been saving but might as well say now this should give you hope as a gator fan we said this last week right if you're a fan of the program you want the guy that billy napier taught for a year at louisiana now he's in year two here at florida to be the best running back technique wise and he is by a mile I mean, he runs behind the zone literally perfectly. Hits the right gap. Is patient waits, uses his blockers, explodes. I mean, that's what you want. That's player development in the system that Napier wants to run. So take that for what it's worth. Then you have ETN, who we mentioned as a freshman. Only knows Napier's system. He's learning it. Super explosive. Dangerous. And then you have Naquan Wright, who's good in everyone's system, which is a big testament to him. He's just not as good as either of those guys. Had himself a fine game. Right? Had himself a fine game. So... The offensive line had a few mishaps in this game in pass protection, but when they were running the football, they were generally absolutely dominant. Uh, Florida should have run the ball a lot more in this football game, but the reason they're passing is you can't beat every team like that, and you need to use these games to develop your quarterback. So if you're wondering why did they pass, that's why, and we're going to talk about some moments that occurred later in the game, but you can't say enough about how great – the offensive line and running backs are, especially compared to where Florida's been for the past 10, 12 years. Really, really, really good stuff on film from these guys. And again, 8.1 yards per carry. Is that expected? Yes. USF's run defense was terrible. It's expected, but it's also easy. And we're chunking yards left and right. Uh, so really good stuff out of, out of those two groups.
1: Yeah. So there's a big conversation about. The carry distribution, right? So is this another Dan Mullen situation? I, I want to push pause on that. Well, first, there, Florida's offense, for better or worse, ran so few plays. Like a criminal amount of plays considering how much better we were. Now, there's some caveats to this, right? You have If you have a pick six, that's going to take away some of your play count. If you have a huge run, the Montreal Johnson touchdown run was like, I think, the third play of that drive. So that's going to lessen your overall number of plays. And you know what? If you score a touchdown on one play every time, you don't care how many plays you have, right? But Florida's also getting off the field too quickly on some drives. And <laughs> that shows you defensively was not getting USF off the field. So that was some of the problems there. If I look at the play, you know, carry distribution, Montreal should have gotten more, certainly. But also really appreciate when Etienne is in the game, he's doing a lot of damage. I think moving forward, we talked about this last week, this should be a much more of like a 70-30 Montreal game or kind of design, right? Unless ETN's super hot for right now, he's been so effective to to not give him the bulk of the carries. It feels like you're missing out. So if it's 60-40 or 60-30-10 or something like that, and again, if you want to use Naquan Wright in the passing game, which it seems like we don't have a lot of interest, then maybe he should be getting the snaps on third down or whatever. But um, I don't think it's criminal that the way they're handling Montreal, but certainly I think he's earned the bulk of the carries. And again, I don't. I would never want a guy who's taking 90% of the carries and you're you're putting him into the line like 25 times. If you have two great running backs, split them up. But I would love to see a 60-40, 70-30 kind of a the thing there.
3: Yeah, I think I think what you're what you're saying is you want two guys to have dominant ball carrying share. Yeah, I agree. And in this game, you also said this. We only ran about forty six plays on offense. Yeah. that's it. So it wasn't like we. So there wasn't enough time to yes. see what the real distribution may have been. Yes. Had we run a full seventy plays, it very may, very well may have been exactly what you said. Right, it could have been you know fifteen for Montreal, twelve for ETN, six for Naquan. Then you're pretty much hitting what you just mentioned. So this game's a little short to examine it, but yeah, I'm, I'm always in the camp. You play your best players all the time, and there's no reason to ever play a suboptimal guy. There's no reason to do it. The reason that you play two guys is two guys fresh, right? You're going to get more expected value out of them than you are one guy 90%, the second guy 10 if they're kind of close to each other. But when the third guy's not as good as those guys, every carry you give that guy reduces your output just period it does that's the harsh reality of sports and you're in this to win you're also in to tell your team i'm gonna do its best for you and you also have to keep guys ready so that's why in the nfl you'll see a lot of these guys get like maybe four carries a game right for sure it's football guy why do these guys get four carries a game Well, they have to keep that guy ready because the reality is running backs get injured you can't just put your third guy on the bench for 10 weeks and then all of a sudden he's got to start Ideally, you want to get him involved. He's practicing hard. You give him some reward for everything he's doing correct. But to your point, that distribution, I think, needs to skew heavily towards those two. It's something we're going to keep saying until we see it do that because that's just where the talent is. I have no doubt Napier knows this, and I I really, truly, fully expect him to begin to move in that direction. It's what he did at Louisiana consistently. So he's dealing with, of course, more of a – I don't want to say political, but you know, anytime you're a first – time head coach on a team that wasn't your roster there's different things you have to turn over and handle there Uh, but i do expect him to move in that direction because his history suggests he would do so
1: all right let me go to a controversial moment in the game really impactful moment florida moves the ball down the field run 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 really effective i think it's first and goal at the five and richardson throws i guess this is a fade um over to justin shorter it's picked off feels really impactful in the moment of course I mean it was yes of course now a <laughs> big picture USF then almost turns the ball over right back but that could have been the the ball game right there probably should have been yeah right um the way they had been moving the ball felt like that was maybe it um, now Billy's explanation of that was that AR had the opportunity to check into that play and throw a pass apparently has some leeway here and the other side of this is that he checked into the run that Montreal Johnson ran for 60 yards. That was a possibility that he checked into a run. So see the good and the bad there was, let me ask you just a couple questions about this play in general. Right? So obviously really bad throw in the moment, the way Florida's been running the ball is probably not the best decision. Although if you're a fully functioning offense, checking into a one-on-one pass play isn't like the worst thing. But talk to me about what your opinion of, of that decision.
3: And then, of course, we know the execution was terrible. So this is good meta strategy and bad tactics, right? Yes. Strategies, long-term tactics are short-term. Strategically, if a team's going to put 10 guys in the box, you don't want to run the football, generally speaking. We've talked about this at you know for years with Mullen. He would do it anyway, and it would drive us crazy, right? But tactically... If the team you're playing is putting ten guys in the box and you're running for eight yards a carry, it doesn't really matter. You run the football. Why? Because running carries least uh, less risk, sorry, than passing, and therefore your expected value is higher. You would just run it every time, knowing that the odds of you not getting eight point one yards are pretty slow on average and uh, small on average. And on top of that, the odds of you fumbling are even smaller than throwing a pick, taking a sack, you know, whatever. So for AR to look at it and say, okay, I have a one-on-one with Shorter who clearly he loves, which is great. It's good to have that kind of relationship with your receiver. And then actually do it is a misapplication of just tactics. Well said. AR is... Look, you and I are you know twice the age of AR. We've watched football for twice the amount of time that AR ever has. I've watched way more film than AR has ever watched. We've spent a lifetime reading books on game theory and applying things in our lives. It's always important to remember... That whatever you may know in your life, tactically or strategically, it's probably not known by a 19 or 20 year old yet. That's why coaching is fun and rewarding as you impart your knowledge to them so they learn it. But he's learning that. I'm pretty sure he's going to learn that now. And if I'm Napier, I'm having a little game theory discussion with him. Hey, yeah, that's right. Most of the time. But you've got to think about the game flow and what's happening in this game as to whether or not you want to do that. So I it was a really bad tactical decision. But again, if, if Kyle Trask had done this, his final year here at Florida, I would have lost my mind. Because that is not what a, a leader who knows what he's doing should do. If Tom Brady did it, right? If Tom Brady wouldn't do it, Aaron Rodgers wouldn't do it. Even Aaron Rodgers, like, you know, if you watch the, 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 the Chicago game the other night, last night, he just ran the ball a million times because they couldn't stop it. So this is a learning point, I think, for him. I'm, I'm, I prefer for quarterbacks to have the ability to check out of things. Your, your ceiling level as a team is to have your quarterback being a thinker. Yes. And having your running back also thinking, which you kind of heard Montrell say, yeah, he liked the check. That's the right call. That's good. That's championship level stuff. Eventually wrong application there tactically. So if you're freaking out about that, don't not the right tactics is the right strategy. I think it's showing a ceiling level progression that we'll get to one day that we're not at yet. And there's going to be some issues, but yeah, clearly that's a moment where I think if you're Billy, you wish you had a little communication device to AR at the last second there and say no 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 run the ball just run the ball and, and on the next drive we ran the ball right every so
1: there's there's certain plays where in certain systems where you have the freedom to check or not check right and there's some plays that coaches wish they would have had their quarterbacks to have the ability to check because something is wide open and they're they don't feel the freedom because they're not allowed to they're gonna go back to the side and they get chewed out if they do something right so that is a playing with fire sometimes you end up with really bad results. If you're trying to optimize, you're trying to grow your team. So AR is in a weird place right now. Obviously you would like to have that back and tell him, Hey, I'm calling this in. Don't check out of it. Right. And that's not something that's always easy to communicate with hand signals. <laughs> so yeah, that it could have been this Billy thought I wouldn't have thought he would even do that. So bad on me. Right. So I, I don't want to like kill Billy for that. Now, AR throwing the ball there. That's not the necessarily the easiest throw, but that was a really bad throw from him in that
3: situation. And I'm sure he wants that back. And that's the other side of it is fade routes. You may love him or hate him. A lot of people hate him. I'm not a big fan of too at all, but they are as a quarterback, they're very safe routes to throw. I mean, you're taught to throw that ball over the head of your receiver. So the only way he can get it is a full max jump, which means there's no chance a shorter corner can ever touch it. I mean, that's how you throw the football. It's going out of bounds or into your receiver's hands at the high point. That ball was horrific. Terrible ball. And again, that's that's just that's a quarterback who's uncomfortable. He's making the right call mentally. And we said AR is a smart guy. And then physically, his body's betraying him. Uh, shorter obviously made a great catch earlier in that drive, just mossing somebody. On a, on, a, on a much better thrown 50-50 ball. But I think in that situation, again, to put that one to bed, tactically, the absolute right move was to run it. And Billy got that fixed to the next drive. Florida ran it every time. Right. And that's that was a sign that, hey, don't check out of any of these. We're crushing them running the football. Just run it. But I like the ceiling play that is giving your quarterback the ability to audible. That's what it's going to take to play football at the highest level. That's where Florida needs to get to. You do not want to micromanage that. Um, so good growth point is what I'm going to chalk that up to. I'm happy Florida won the game and didn't lose because of that, Uh, but certainly I think you should feel good about this. Billy Napier didn't make that call. I told you I would have freaked out if Trask made the call. I would have lost my mind if Napier made that call. True. And he didn't. So that's a massive happy moment for all of you, and for me included. When I found out that was a check by AR, I felt amazing, because that makes sense. Across the board, it makes sense why that would happen. It would have made no sense yes. if Napier did. It, it would have been reckless and idiotic. Very well so. said in the moment you're freaking out. Like, what is he doing? Correct. Yes. That doesn't, so that was good. So that's a good right? moment. So it turns, uh, it turns a bad tactical moment into something that actually is, is encouraging. I would say. Agreed. All right. So the
1: offense was so bad in certain spots that people are, you know, just wistfully dreaming about Dan Mullen, how beautiful some of those plays looked and things like that. Um, We've talked a little bit about this. Anything that we just want to say that would help differentiate what Florida is trying to do on offense here versus what Dan Mullen had been doing that we haven't already mentioned?
3: Yeah, first of all, a couple things people should remember about what they're pining for with Dan Mullen. Uh, Go watch the film from last year's offense outside of the speed option game against Alabama and recall what that looked like when you were all freaking out about what the offense looked like, right? But obviously, Dan Mullen and Billy Napier could not be more different. As we've said many times before, Dan Mullen is a top-level offensive coordinator. Guaranteed, hands down. In fact, if you wanted to create an amazing marriage, Dan Mullen would be the offensive coordinator for Florida and Billy Napier is your head coach. Because Dan Mullen is not a championship-level coach. But he's a championship-level offensive coordinator. Billy Napier is not, by resume, by definition, by reputation, a championship-level offensive coach. He's not. That's something we talked about. That's why... I think it's very reasonable, and we said we'd save this conversation until right now, to expect that if I'm advising Billy as his friend, hey, you know what, you can give this a run. Sure, I don't ever want to doubt somebody. Projections and predictions are often wrong. But if the data comes out or the data comes out and says, you know, Billy, you're just not that great at this. Are you willing to give this up so that your team can become great? And I think for Billy, I really hope the answer will be yes, if that day comes, that he's not going to so hang his hat on being the offensive coordinator and play caller that he dies with it, because I think he's really good at everything else. And so far, he doesn't seem to be great at that, like we've talked about, right? Again, imagine a pairing of Napier and Mullen. That's pretty formidable. I think that's what you're kind of looking for is something like that. Nick Saban himself had ideas on how offense should be run. He alludes to it all the time he wisely gave up those ideas and said, I'm just going to hire the best offensive coordinators I can and let them run what they want to run. And I'm going to be, you know, the head strategist. And I think Napier saw that knows that Dabo same thing. He's come from those two trees, Alan. So we're going to kind of see what this factor is, but for all of you thinking, uh, and this is a, this is the point for this conversation, Alan, the Dan Mullen comments we've heard are, well, was Dan Mullen right about Anthony Richardson that he wasn't ready and that he couldn't play and that emory was okay well if he was then what the heck was emory doing <laughs> his numbers were terrible yeah so on top of that who recruited emory dan mullen who recruited anthony richardson dan mullen who recruited kyle trask not dan mullen so if dan mullen is at the same time the guy who knew everything and at the same time the guy who recruited two guys who can't play quarterback oh by the way Emery jones just got his second coach fired in Herm Edwards you may have seen that news and Emory Jones numbers this year Alan in case you're wondering because I know that you are because this is the same guy again who you know was tabbed correct the first game against Northern Arizona he was 13 for 18 for 152 yards and no touchdowns and no picks then against Oklahoma State he was 12 for 24 for 223 yards and one touchdown and no picks and then Eastern Michigan a loss that fired Herm Edwards in Arizona State they're now one and two he was 20 for 32 for 182 yards and one touchdown. Those numbers are Emory numbers to the core. It doesn't matter where he's playing. That's who Emory Jones is. So I don't say that to disparage Emory Jones. I just say that if you're starting to romanticize certain things about someone, you've got to take the good with the bad and the truth of the whole situation of what's going on. But I think it's safe to say the better narrative right now is that Anthony Richardson is more comfortable in Dan Mullen's offense He's more comfortable in a spread-based offense where you spread the field east-west, you do not take your eyes off the field in front of you, and you make your reads that way than he is in this style offense. I think that's the bigger takeaway rather than Mullen was right, AR wasn't ready last year. Because on the film last year, AR was definitely a better quarterback than Emery was with his technique and what he did and how he did it. And this year, it's amazing. Yeah, if Dan Mullen knew something that AR would crumble –
1: or something or was prescient enough to know this, right? Yeah, that'd be pretty amazing. How do right. You know that? But even if that was true, you were still flailing with the other guy. Right. Why wouldn't you say, like, well, maybe he will do great and won't crumble. So th- that that whole narrative I was like I have zero time for. Yeah,
3: yeah it's not that's the little point. So we're gonna discuss it once and that's that. But again, remember Dan Mullen is a championship level office of coordinator. Everyone has said it. We said it the day he got hired. That's what we knew about him. We didn't know if he was a championship-level coach. Napier has won championships as a coach, not necessarily known as a coordinator. And so that's something we have to follow at this program. The good news is, Alan, when you're the head coach, you can hire coordinators and TV coaches. When you're the head coach, you cannot hire another head coach to be a (laughs) championship-level head coach. So this is the right problem to have. If you are Napier, if this does, in fact, become a problem, I want to say one more time, it's too early to say that right now. Something to follow. It's way too early to say that. He needs to get his chance to prove that he's not that guy before we say he's not that guy.
1: And he's had so much success, right? And it it wouldn't be the question if he can he do it or not. It would be like, can he be
3: elite at it? Exactly. Exactly. Right.
1: And so... We're not, I don't think we're questioning whether he can coach offense or have success with offensive side of the ball.
3: Correct. All right. So now some play designs that could be implemented. So right now, Florida under Napier shrinks the field East West. If you've watched this for any amount of time, you've seen this. Other teams do this too. Like the Rams, for example, will run a lot of bunch sets. The Rams are way more creative though in their passing game, much more complicated. The routes are much different. Think of what Joe Burrow and LSU did. They ran a lot of bunch sets too. They spread you out. They also ran bunch sets where they're running all sorts of read-based routes. They're running a lot of really, really excellent route combinations to beat specific defenses. Florida's doing essentially none of that. So let's start with what Florida's well, doing. Also, that LSU team had tomorrow right, chase and Justin
1: Jefferson. Sure,
3: sure. But so. schematically, you can look at the scheme yeah, and say, yeah. you need the talent to go with the scheme, right? But the scheme-wise, if you're looking on film at what Florida's running in the passing game, it's shrunk down. So that means the more athletic you are, right, the less space you've given those athletes. So back to urban Meyer spread option days, you know, the old, that was the new school thought was, Hey, if I spread you east, east and west, and I give the ball to Percy Harvin, and he's got half the field to work with you're in trouble. If I put Percy between the tackles it takes away a lot of his magic. If the field's not spread, so I'm going to spread the field out and make you cover Tim and Percy and the entire width of the field. Napier, not that way. I'm going to shrink the field down. I'm going to play it in a very small area. And I'm going to run a lot of heavy packages where the field is half the size. So now you're going to have to be a different style football team. That's step one. That hurts playing simple as an athletic team where you just give it to a guy in space and he runs around. That's step one, right? That hurts you. So secondarily, the passing combinations, which we've talked about, and the routes now three games in are very basic. There's two main schools of thoughts with plays. I am in the school where I want to find the optimal play for that defense I'm facing. And I want to punish them by trying to two on one their safeties. We spent a whole year talking about this, right? So for now, I want a two on one their safeties. I want to find routes that I know. If you're in cover two, I'm going to run a corner and a post at one safety, and then I'm going to run another one to occupy your other safety. And that safety cannot be right. He cannot guard the corner and the post, and the defenders underneath him are going to stop because it's what you do in a cover two. And that introduces concepts like pattern matching, which we have talked about before, but now the defense has to adjust to that, right? But Florida's doing none of that stuff. Florida's not 2 on one anybody for the most part. They're basically running what I'm going to call sort of the Swiss Army or more old-school play style where you create a play that generally works against a lot of defenses and you just run it. And then it generally works. And the quarterback goes through his progression and they work or they don't work. But there's no rhyme or reason to the fact, much like an air raid philosophy would be or the other ones would be, where, oh, they're in cover two, I'm going to maximally punish them. They're in cover three, I'm going to run four verticals it's antiquated and it's old school and that's what's happening right now on film i don't like that all right so you got the bunch sets you've got an antiquated passing offense through three games what can you change well one you spread the field out immediately spread it out get these guys in space that does two things one it forces the defense to more clearly show what they're running on the back end when you spread a team out it's much easier to identify where's the nickelback where's the linebacker is he covering my slot receiver is he moving out to the hash mark Is he going to move to the numbers? Is the safety going to shade over on that side? So pre-snap, it's an easier read. Post-snap, the defense now just can't load the box against Richardson. Because if they do, it's a very easy throw. It's a hitch route to your slot receiver. It's a slant route. It's a sit route from your wide receiver, right? The combinations become very effective because, hey, we don't want AR to run. We're going to commit a guy to the box. Great. Well, now we have tons of space for short throws. And AR's got a rocket for an arm. He can make a throw from the far hash all the way across, right? So we can threaten the whole field east-west, and now we give our athletes space. On top of that, I no longer require AR to have to turn his back to the field, making a read. He's looking all the way around. He's doing what he's really good at. And then lastly, I get the benefit of something Florida could run, which obviously is a way more RPO game, which we basically don't run at all right now, the run-pass option, which are easy throws, right? He can take a look. He keeps his eyes on the key defender, He puts the ball in the gut of the running back and that defender comes forward. He pulls it out, hits a pass. And lastly, you can introduce very simple plays like a speed option. Super simple stuff to put AR on the edge. You saw USF do it really well with a quarterback who's vastly inferior to Richardson as a runner and it tore Florida up. And that is not complicated. This is high schools are running this stuff all over the country. Every single Friday night, you could install this stuff very quickly. And perhaps Billy can stick with his base offense, but go 20, 30% of this stuff. Do anything to give AR a chance to feel confident, right? And then try to build him into what you want to run. So that's what I think could be done very practically. I think you could start with some baby steps, try to get five, 10 plays into a game that work like this, see how it works. And look, in college football, as complicated as it is, Alan, it's also very simple. Against Tennessee this week, let's say Florida finds a formation AR is comfortable in, right? You could run that same play 10 times. Because you can audible the routes around. You can change one little wrinkle here, and you can still run it. You don't have to run 600 plays. So I think those are some very practical implications and design ideas that you could take that we know from the past that AR has done well. And I'll end it with this. Napier said in the press conference on Monday that his job is to find what his quarterback does well and give him those plays. I love hearing that. We're going to find out what he means by that. Does that mean I'm going to try to continue to find plays in my system that works for him? Or I'm going to just say, you know what, guys, let's go to the drawing board here. This stuff, this is going to be what we're going to run next year and the year after or whatever. But right now, if we don't do something different, we're going to have to either probably switch quarterbacks. Can Jack Miller do it? If he can run my system and run it well, maybe I go to him. But if I can't, what can we get out of this guy if we make some tweaks here? Can we make this offense better? And I think that's what we're going to find out is how creative or how willing is Napier to try to mold to his guy AR who's clearly struggling right now in Napier's offense.
1: Okay, so let me ask this question Not that you've counted it up, but obviously we've seen Florida go five wide. We've run a little bit of zone read stuff. How much of that have we shown? Like How, how much would you, I don't know, guesstimate that's in Napier's playbook that is what you're currently talking about is already in there?
3: It's there. We said at Louisiana, he, he obviously does run empty. He'll run four wide. He'll, he'll run those sets. I mean, they're there. Um, I think, and I haven't done this yet. For those of you that have asked me, go back and look at Louisiana and your one on film. I, I will go back and look and see what the progression was like. But it's already there. And again, for any football coach, if Napier were here right now, I'm sure we could start talking about every style of offense, and he would know them all, right? Air raid this. And he would tell you why he doesn't want to do it. And hopefully one day we have that conversation because maybe you will be really convincing as to why you want to do this. And to be fair, you can win a championship running a million different offenses. That's, and I've also said that I like the ones I like, but you can win running other ones. So he might have great reasons for it, but that stuff is already there. And I think the key is if I'm right, and I could be wrong, if I'm right that AR does not like turning his back on play action, then I think you have to immediately scrap something that I like in the long run, which is the pistol and put the running back next to AR in more of a traditional spread set, so he never has to turn his back. That's going to limit yeah. your running game a little bit. How Not does that
1: mitigate the success that Florida's have been having I don't running think, this wide I think. It,
3: I think it reduces the ceiling a little bit because it, it slows down your running back some. But the bottom line is you can you have to pass the football. Certainly. So let's say that we can average seven yards a carry in a pistol, and we can average 6.1 out of the traditional spread set okay, great. I'm going to give that up all day if I can complete passes. And so I think that's something they have to toy with and figure out. You can also put AR under center and have him hand off on those wide zone runs. Right. And I I, impl- I talked about this last week. Like I wish we went under center more because going under center and running play action is also hard because your back is turned, but it's also a lot more deceptive. So if you run that correctly, when he turns around, his first read is generally wide open. That's why it's a very quarterback-friendly style. The pistol is very complicated, especially the way people are defending him now, where he turns his back for less of an amount of time. But when he's opening back up to the field, nobody's fooled. The linebackers, and the safeties, they're all over our pass routes, Allen. So I would try to introduce something more complicated for the linebacker, something they're more likely to bite on being under center, and then scrap the pistol for now. And keep working in practice with AR, right? Keep practicing with this stuff. It's your stuff, Napier. Run your stuff. But if he's struggling with it, you got to say at some point in time, hey, look, my job is to win football games and build for the long run. If I can do both at the same time, I'm going to do it, right? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do both things at the same time. Um, And that's why being a coach is fun. You have to problem solve. So I think you to find out which direction he chooses. But it's certainly not. If you're thinking that's like a bridge too far to do some of this stuff, it's definitely not. It can absolutely be done. Um, and coaches will do this, right? And I think in college football, Florida has enough talent on the roster and AR is a talented enough guy. This is not in the NFL where you're like, well, we're going to run the wildcat every time because we can't throw. I think there are things that could be done to at least put on film to prove, hey, maybe AR is totally broken and it's time to go to somebody else. But maybe we try this to see if he is, right? To see where he's at.
1: Yeah, and I think this is a really interesting moment here because Florida has had success each of the last two games until it hasn't, right? And this game... Shouldn't have really been close no matter what we did offense. The offense was effective enough, but like by a wide margin, right? That we're going to get to this in a minute. The, it, the defense was the story of this game that made this a game. It shouldn't have been a threatening moment where shouldn't Florida could try a lot of different things. And who knows that AR not playing that well, but whatever. Florida still wins by 20. If you get a expected defensive output, now obviously that didn't happen. So, all right, anything else you want to note on offense that I think would point us to the future? Dude, well, let me ask this. Seemed like the tight ends were a little more involved in the run game, a little more 12 personnel in terms of running success. Is that is that true or is that just my guesstimation there?
3: I think that on film that was consistent. I think the difference the biggest difference in this game is that we've we've I don't want to say finally, but we used zipperer again which he was good last year I mean he was fine he wasn't you know Pitts or those guys but he was fine as a as a pass catching tight end and there were two the two of the most open plays Florida had were to him one we hit on one we didn't because you had Xander's whiff on a on a pass block which Napier I think was kind of mentioning in his press conference without mentioning it that would have been a big pass play again to Zipperer so they got him involved with some more deception which was nice I think he needs to be way more involved than that Uh, but no I mean I think all in all Florida has something it hasn't had in a long time, Alan, and that's excellent pass protection with a super athletic quarterback. So to me, if I'm coaching, I can build with that. totally. And maybe that requires me to give up something I love, which is whatever style I prefer, but that allows you to be flexible. And I want to say that as the end piece, if Florida's offensive line was a sieve, then forget it. Like you can do all you want with, all these things I talked about, it really doesn't matter. Teams are going to own you, but it's not. And that gives Florida, I think a lot of room for creative ingenuity to find what this guy does well before it's too late this season. I think there's room for that.
1: Agreed. And I I would say that is a great place to stop there. Let's flip over to the defense, man, this was rough. I was like having these flashbacks of previous years where Florida could not do anything to stop the run. Uh, I forget who said it on Twitter. It was like, makes you wonder what Christian Robinson's been, was doing in the, in the practice
3: room for three years. We wondered that for a long time. We asked that openly.
1: (laughs) Okay. Some of the raw stats here. Uh, USF had 116 yards passing 300 yards, rushing eight for 15 on third down four or five in the red zone. Uh, The defense had five hurries. No sacks. No sacks, right? Let's skipped over that. Sorry. Two picks, one fumble recovery, so that was the good stuff. Um, USF ran 50% more plays than UF.
3: Yeah, they ran 75 or 6 plays to US 46, which is, un- I mean, almost twice as many, really. Yeah, which and is it unreal. felt like that. Yeah, and it was. that was accurate. Okay.
1: So th- there's a lot of data here now, Florida with and without Ventrell Miller. He goes down last year. I was like, not a big deal, right? goes down this year not a big deal right big big deal seemingly right so this is an intertwined thing right here so is having Vincent Miller really that important aka why are the linebackers so bad at filling the right gaps is there some other element that we're missing here
3: no and we saw this with Hopper we begged for Hopper to play begged 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 big and Grant didn't play Hopper and then Hopper did play his last game at UF and he was he was a just baller Mm -hmm. if you read the missouri reports he's by far the best player on that team he already this season has like 15 solo tackles a pick a forced fumble like he's a menace so it's personnel that matters at this stage but it's also the lack of the tremendous lack of development that's occurred with with florida's linebackers and a lot of new guys who haven't had time to develop yet i mean florida played jamar james is a true freshman he was playing high school last year and he's the most competent out of these guys right scooby williams talented guy He's played zero college football. DeWan Black, a guy lots of people talked about, doesn't see the field. Which which he's not.
1: If you want to talk about a linebacker field, he's a hybrid safety. Correct. And that's what of, I was going to hit on. Yeah. This
3: is your kind of talk, right? Is Florida recruited these athletic guys that didn't fit in any box? Well, that's not good because you need a linebacker box to be filled. So the answer is, yeah, of course. Ventral Miller's a real linebacker. He's a three-star guy. He's limited. But he knows how to play the position when it comes to stopping the run. He's good. Look, BYU has got a bunch of two-star dudes playing linebacker and they dominated USF. They couldn't run on them. They just couldn't run on them at all because they know how to play linebacker. USF had number 11. It was a sensationally sound linebacker. So I think I would be really concerned, Alan, really, 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 really concerned if this coaching staff came in and they inherited juniors and seniors who had played linebacker before and were fine. And now this stuff's happening. That is not the case. Florida is one of the youngest teams in all of college football. They're playing guys who have absolutely zero experience in college football. And they're doing it against the USF team. As Napier said, and he was right, that specifically designed an offense that could be as confusing to linebackers as possible. And if you get one guy in there, Ventro Miller, who's your quarterback, he can line up your Shamar James in the right spot. He can tell him before the snap which way to go. Literally, he can tell him, hey, we're going left right? Hey, fill the gap. Hey, make sure you watch your front side gap. He can get so many things right to help. And he himself can make the play without him. You have the blind leading the blind out there. And you can see it on film. Oftentimes they're both pointing to each other. Shamar James basically was telling Scooby Williams where to go on like every play, which is a good sign for Shemar James because he's a freshman and he's figuring out, you know, Scooby's figuring stuff out. So I don't want to like go crazy here. When you watch the film, this stuff makes sense. It makes sense. And let me just let me just indulge you with like a minute of linebacker talk. How does a linebacker make a read, right? How does he know where to go? If you're thinking he just watches the running back, well, in high school, you'd tend to teach your players just watch the running back. But at college football, if you just watch the running back, most teams employ the running back to deceive you. So let's go back to Florida's glorious years under Grantham. Florida's running, I mean, linebackers were often watching the running backs, which is why they were so susceptible to counter runs because the running back <laughs> takes a step to the left and they go over there and then they're stuck. Right. Wham. Well, the, in the NFL, you're going to generally have a three read or a triangle read system where you're going to read a guard, the center and the running back. Now, the offensive line will generally tell you where the play is going more often than the running back will. But when you see all three of them, you know where the play is going. And that's why NFL linebackers are so much better at shedding blocks. Now that's a really hard skill. I want you to imagine being a 19 year old or 18 year old olds played basketball football Now you're playing college football against USF. And on every single play, they have a guy who's in motion who they're faking the ball to. They have a running back who they're faking the ball to. They have offensive linemen who are going in different directions and the quarterback could keep it. And if you are one second too slow, you're getting buried by a double team of a center and a guard and you're out of the play. That's what it was like for these guys out there. I mean, they're drinking from a fire hose and they're getting it wrong. (laughs) And so the whole thing about this though is that like, USF, they ran their base offense, but they were smart to get really creative knowing without Ventrell Miller there, they had a unique opportunity. If he's there, that junk's not happening. They're not running for 300 yards. Same thing that happened last year. So yeah, to your your point, Alan, that's how important Ventrell Miller is. We have almost no ability to stop the run without him because we don't know how to fill gaps in the linebacker spot. They're late to react. They're often totally on the wrong side of the play completely wrong they are eating every fake like it's their favorite cookie and that's not a good way to stop a team running the football and
1: most of these guys were the most physically dominant guy out there so quote-unquote shedding a block was not a difficult thing for them now if you have a 300 pound sec lineman running at you it's different also i don't think they got a lot of help from some members of the defensive line so i still think brenton cox doesn't play his assignment all the time. Antoine Power Island goes inside when you should go outside or vice versa. There were moments in there where they had the play bottled up and they didn't do the sound discipline thing. And here's what I want to say. There's a long history of undisciplined play, of not sound tactics and fundamentals. So that doesn't get overcome overnight, right? Especially with so many guys. If you just had to maybe coach one guy to do the right thing, you could probably do it. Uh, when everybody's tempted towards these things or has bad habits, bad techniques is always trying to do this stuff. Oh man, I, I, I'm almost tempted not to ask this because it, it might set us up for bad expectations, but
3: even think about what's a realistic time frame to change a long history of undisciplined play one year by year two, you'll get a lot of this stuff fixed and you can already see it. And I'll tell you why. So you mentioned, well, first of all, Cox, it was a monster on film in this game. Yeah. And he's getting better and better. And he did go hero mode, but only a couple of times. But generally speaking, he did his job on almost every play. And
1: he dominated the end of the game. But if there's and
3: moments that he doesn't, that doesn't help those linebackers. No, either. but there weren't many and they're getting better. What I want to say is he's progressing under this, this coaching staff quickly. The first two plays of the game, he made, this is how sad this was. He made the tackle. They were runs away from his side. He made the tackle on the other side of the field, 10 yards down the field which is ridiculous for your right-side defensive end to make a tackle on the sideline from behind. But more importantly, he's single-handedly blowing people up, wrecking plays, and you see him, like on this one, when he didn't hold the edge, he tried to hold the edge, but he tried to do too much. So he'd still be kind of there, but he was like, I know that maybe my linebacker's not going to fill that gap. I am think I'm athletic enough to try to hold one more beat, right. which is a vast improvement from just flying in there. But to your point, though, and this is the point I want to get to. So Cox, if Cox goes away, this defense is literally screwed. So let's all hope he doesn't go away. And I think he's getting better. And I think he's doing less of that stuff. But to your point, the other, let's call them veterans, guys who have played before and have been taught by the Grantham guys. Every single one of them had moments where they just disregarded holding the edge. This is a major problem for this defensive line. And it was Ryland Powell who did it twice in a row on their biggest run plays, just ignored the edge, the fourth down play. He's the edge defender. What the heck is he doing? Just gone. No one's there. He knows that, right? Um, Princely did it three different times, just totally blows through his responsibility. Then later in the game, makes some great plays. You know who's not doing it though, Allen. You know who's never doing that on film so far? Is all these young guys that are playing. Boone? Never. Not one time has he not held the edge when he's played it. He does it perfectly. Uh, you even look at Chris McKellen at D-tackle. Perfectly. Those guys are doing the right thing. And these are guys that do not have a history of other coaches. So the good news is the youngest guys are doing everything right. And that means the sooner they learn what the heck is going on out there and they get stronger, the better they're going to be. It's these guys that have been in the systems for a while and it takes a while. And it generally takes your freshmen beating those guys out. And so again, that's why I say one year by the end of one year, These high school guys who are now college guys are going to gain 20 to 25 pounds of muscle if they're on the defensive side. They're going to gain a tremendous amount of knowledge, experience, understanding, and they're going to beat out those guys who are doing stuff wrong. So I don't think this is going to last forever because I'm already seeing things improve. But man, is it frustrating to watch these SEC level defensive linemen not set the edge on defense. The literal number one, most basic thing you can do. It's also really frustrating to watch again, to pick on Cox for a second, a guy who I think was great for the most part still try to do two jobs at once. These guys are always doing it. You know, on the option play on the goal line, he tries to hold the quarterback and the running back rather than just taking the running back for Cox though. Allen, it makes some sense. He doesn't trust his linebackers. Right. I wouldn't trust him either. So I give Cox more of a pass right now. It'd be one thing if we had all sec linebackers back there and he's going rogue, you can see he's visibly frustrated at times with the players after a play when he does his job and it goes for eight or nine yards. He's like, how did you not fill the gap? Right? So I, I kind of understand what he's doing. I do not understand what a guy like Princely is doing. Or Ryan. I don't understand what he's doing. He's not a hero player. Right? If you're, if you're Rylan Powell, just do your daggone job. So that part is really annoying. But I think you asked the most important question. I think by next year, we're not going to be talking about this nearly as much. That's my hunch. But it is not going to happen by this game against Tennessee. It just is not. These guys have some really bad habits. They're going rogue. They're not trusting each other, and it's not great. So felt
1: like in terms we talked about the young guys. We haven't talked about Amari Bernie, who looked like I don't know what he was doing out there half the time. If he's not better and is in fact worse, there's some other guys who haven't played. I don't know. Maybe maybe these guys are worse. Wingo, Chief Border. I don't throw anybody out there. Feels like Bernie is just a net negative. For the defense, and I hate to single him out, but if he's your experienced linebacker, I don't know what
3: that does for you. It's crazy because he's so athletic. Like you right. see him run down. Right, ran down the running back. The running back. He's a linebacker. He's ran him down like it was nothing. Yet this guy is on the wrong side of the play most of the time as a as a run defending linebacker. I mean, he is clueless out there. He can't make a single read. He's been in the system. He's been college football for a hundred years now. It's unreal. It's unbelievable how poor he is at that. And to your point, I don't think that's lost on the staff. I don't think it is. I think you saw the result. And perhaps you were in the camp of saying, look, let's play Scooby Williams. Let's play Shamar James. Let's see what these guys can do. I think in the case of Shamar James, from each game start to finish, he gets better as the game goes on. He's not making an impact yet, but you can see him start to get better. The reads are coming a little faster. He's starting to, be, he's starting to get on the right side of the play. He starts to get, he starts to be able to recognize, he'll he'll kind of pat his chest like, that's my fault. I needed to be in that. So he's learning. For Scooby, it was, he was, he was a lost man out there. And I'm not blaming him. That's a big deal. I think he'll get better. But the question is, who else do you put in there? And do they look like Scooby? And if they do, is that better than than having Bernie? And I don't know. That's, this is where we are. It's crazy to think that's true, but you kind of just saw it. When you you try that out with a talented young guy, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, he's like he's way wrong all well, the time." Well, for sure. And so this is I don't the know.
1: man. I don't know. This is hard because you would think, okay, we don't have Ventril Miller out there. We don't want to just throw two young guys at the will. So we'll we'll play Bernie the whole game. That didn't really work for you. No. I mean, do you got this? This is maybe a radical strategy, and because you hope for improvement from the way more talented guys. Okay, let's take this. I'm making a guy up in my head, right? Who, not that talented, played linebacker in high school. He's on the scout team. He will never make any plays, but he will fill the right hole on virtually every play. Is that? I think that's preferable. Yeah. Than having is. the guy in the wrong hole, even if he gets run over afterward, he at least slows down what they're trying to do.
3: It is. I I can only imagine. This is. This sounds insane to say but i can only imagine that there isn't anyone on the roster that's like that i i mean this staff isn't that kind of staff they they're going to play guys if they have anyone that can do their job they're going to play I mean, here here's the side that we should talk about okay so the linebackers are just they've been a disaster we've chronicled this we've talked about this we've feared this they've been horrible the defensive line does things wrong but the defensive line also does a lot of stuff right right yes they they make so plays for sure the, the part of the problem now is the defensive line basically has to stop the run or it's a 10 yard run. And so like, we're kind of noticing some of that stuff. And you really are like hyper paying attention to the D line, not necessarily always holding their gap perfectly. But if you have good linebackers, you can say that. I mean, we were blowing Kentucky out of the gap on the D line. It didn't matter because our linebackers are making hero plays. So the D line, I think is fine with upside. We're thin, but we're fine with upside. And look, the corners, their technique is eight. 100 million times better. Yes, I'm, glad, than what we you, I'm saw glad you got to this last year. And I want to get to this because the point is like this coaching staff is all working together to coach technique. So it'd be one thing if the entire, like we saw the Grand Thumb, the entire Dagon defense was clueless and lost and terrible. That's not true. You have some really strong units that are playing really good team football and are doing everything right. And that leads me to believe that this is being taught correctly and this is a personnel issue. The age old thing we always wanted to say on the podcast is it coaching or is it personnel? Although it's too soon to say for sure, this is way more leaning towards personnel than coaching right now. And in fact, a lot of the scheme Florida employed in this game was actually really good on the fourth down early on. We have, we have Scooby Williams running dead free through an uh, unblocked through a gap to tackle the quarterback and he misses and they convert, right? That's a great play call. We actually brought Trey tradey now and rotated right into the exact run play that we're going to run. And there were multiple times in the game. We did that. We just couldn't make a play, but The corners right now, their technique, not only in pass defense, but in run defense, is sensational. On east-west screens, perfect. They outside leverage. They make sure they turn the ball carrier back to the middle, right? All these things we did not see in previous years. They're doing it, and they're doing it really well, and young guys are doing it really well. Devin Moore plays technically sound on every snap. He's smart. He's heady, right? So there are good things that are happening there, but man— this problem, which you alluded to the top of the show of the linebacker scenario, seems unsolvable. And it seems like you might do something crazy, like try to employ a five man front and take a linebacker off the field or even just go dime, literally just go dime and put one linebacker out there and put an extra lineman out there and just kind of run some crazy stuff because you are so linebacker deficient. If you can perhaps take a risk and hold the of scrimmage as best you can. And fill that gap with a nickel. Like Perkins is a really, really good, smart gap defender. He's undersized, but go an extra lineman. Keep Perkins out there the whole time, right? Like try something like that because this linebacker thing is not working right now. And it's insane to say that at Florida, but oof, it, there are no good solutions to this problem unless there's guys at practice that are doing well. They're not playing, and I just can't see that being the case. They were trying everyone in that game at the at, the at the middle linebacker spots, and it just didn't it didn't matter. Yeah, that
1: was difficult to watch. Um, I do want to give a note here on Bohannon, who was really, I think, clever in the run game. I'm I'm not sure what share of the pie to give him. He was a difficult guy to bring down. If you're slicing that up, is that mostly because he was just pretty crafty and like a nice player who made some bonehead mistakes in the passing game? Or is that the Florida defense? They should have been able to corral him and they were making mistakes.
3: Uh, more of Florida because the goal of the offensive line is to create a two-way gap for the running back. And oftentimes they were creating, sometimes they created a two-way gap, but oftentimes it was really a one-way gap. But then, you know, Florida's linebackers would be like nowhere to be found. And the defensive line would have pushed actually into the backfield. So there's many plays where the D line wins at the line of scrimmage were like one yard into their backfield. And it's a 10 yard run, which is ridiculous. That's insane. Some of the plays USF, really caught florida by surprise but that wasn't the majority that was some and that's just you guys gonna happen in every game nice play design good work some complicated stuff they had a really nice play a highlight on the film review where they line up a, they move they move their tight end in motion they line them up as an h-back then they do a right a right tackle tight end exchange in the block where the tight end comes and down blocks the defensive end and the the tackle kicks out and blocks you know your edge defender it's a really nice play and then you get your running back as your lead blocker and you run a counter play. basically. I mean, it's a beautiful play design, really nice play. They gained like 15 yards on that play. But, you know, all in all, it's just that without linebackers filling gaps, you're going to suffer against anyone. And that's the story of this game. And that's what really hurt us. Um, one thing that, that was super frustrating for me, and I've gone this far without mentioning it, but, uh, you know, Trey Dean, obviously playing, <laughs> he uh, he was very fortunate not to get toasted on what may have been a game-ending Slant wheel combo in the fourth quarter when he was burned by about five yards on that play, right? I'm sure you recall that one. Uh, but during the game, there are multiple times on film where Trading makes a tackle. USF just runs for ten yards, gets a first down. USF runs to the five yard line. There's like five different occasions, and he's getting up and he's flexing, yeah, finger wagging, you know. And I, I'm not on the podcast here to pick on individual people as players or humans, but as the coach and me. That stuff, I would just, there'd be zero tolerance for it. He would not, I just, he'd be on the bench. Like the second he did it, he'd be on the bench for a long time. That's so out of touch with what's happening. USF is either winning or tied or driving on you. They get a first down on third and 12 and you're finger wagging. What the heck are you doing? And it really bothers me that this guy is like this. And all I can think here is how have we not replaced this guy yet? How, how are we, how have we not done it? He gets toasted in pass coverage all the time. He has no clue how to read what's happening on the field. If he happens to be in the area and there's, and he's not having to make a read, he's a good tackler. But is that really the best we can do at Florida with our strong safety right now? And maybe the answer is it is. There's, so a, many there's a lot of talented there. guys, but yeah, this is not like the linebacker spot to me, Allen. We do, I think, have guys that can do this, at least at some level of competence that need to be tried. And I'm going to keep saying each week on this podcast that Dean gets 90 million snaps. That is ridiculous and I don't understand it. I love to have a conversation with, with Patrick Tony about why that's happening because he's not good on film. He's an individualist. He's out of touch what's happening in the game, and he's out there running around like he's you know, like he's the world's greatest strong safety. I, I don't understand it. It bothers me. So, yeah, a, a he does level. some
1: things well. He can cover in a one-on-one scenario with a guy who doesn't overmatch him. But there's so many guys who are fairly highly recruited. You have a near yeah. five-star in Wilson, who's a freshman. I, I guess you wouldn't want but
3: And he's playing. Yeah. But they typically have him playing for Torrance with Dean. Yeah. and Which Torrance is like a super smart, in-the-right-spot guy. I, I don't understand why Dean's the guy that never comes off the field.
1: Right. And you have... I, the guy who's never really played Corey Collier, who was a near five-star safety, McMillan, Kamar Wilcox, and you would think you would maybe all these guys are just bad.
3: Who knows? Well, but, let's not say bad, but inexperienced to the unready. points where they're worried they're not going to rotate correctly and then blow a back end play. Yeah. So
1: that is, and he again is not great at filling his gap on run plays either. So
3: no, I mean all the time he's run. I don't know. Like the best thing he does on film this week is what I'll show is, and this is good, at least when they're about to have a big run play, he just makes sure that he takes the blockers outside angle to turn, to turn the, you know, the runner inside so someone else can tackle him, which is important. He's doing that consistently well, but there's nothing plus about his game. And then to deal with the individual theatrics is frustrating. And so, Again. Yeah, you're not the
1: first person to say that for sure.
3: No, well, obviously not. And I don't want to pick on him. Like if I was a coach, I'd say the same thing. We always try to say what we'd say to, their, to anyone's face in person. So it's not like, oh, I hate Trey Dean. But it's like, hey, Trey, like this does not make sense. This is not good team football. What you're putting on film is not good at any level. And it's also a little tone deaf to what's happening in the actual football game. So let's clean up our game and do everything right and still not do that. Because that's not the time when USF is about to score to take the lead on you, to be finger wagging after a third down and 12 run. But I digress. Let's talk about Kimber's pick, Alan. Okay, yeah. Because I wanna, this brings me yeah. so much joy. I loved it. So Kimber had a rough game last week. We talked about that. He struggled. Talented guy, good corner. But this is a technique comment, which I love, right? So for the past several years, we've talked about Florida's corner technique and it's abysmal and wrong. And like nobody was teaching them is what we would say. And now it's like a thing of beauty. So we're an off, we're an off technique. So he's seven yards off. And when the ball is snapped, he doesn't move because you shouldn't move because you're going to watch to see those first two or three yards of the wide receivers release. And if they break to a slant route or an out route or a hitch route, then you're going to drive downhill and make a play on the ball. We have not seen this at Florida for many, many moons. And then we saw it. Kimber sits there. He doesn't move. He watches the receiver. The receiver goes to slant. He snaps his head to the quarterback. He makes himself the receiver, takes the pick, takes it to the house. The first pick six Florida's had since twenty eighteen. Wow. That is unreal, right? Phenomenal stuff. You also had a great uh defensive stop on the goal line. Pass breakup. Slant yeah. route. Perfect technique. It's just awesome to watch these corners putting really good technique in, whether it's whether it's press press man or it's off man technique or it's in zone. And credit to the linebackers here. Something our linebackers really struggled with was pass coverage. Well they're actually much better. Like, that's what they're doing really well now. It's in like zone pass coverage. Yes, in zone pass coverage, they're actually, Shamar James and all these guys are doing really well. They are dropping back and they're getting into passing lanes and they're making plays. They're doing a nice job of it. So that's all of a sudden become a strength, which is good because that's much easier to do than, again, learning how to run ID. And so that's a good sign. That's why I continue to say I'm not I'm not going to sit here and press a panic button on defense because there's so many things that are way better than what we've seen And I think it's a matter of learning, but great pick by Kimber, good stuff by corners across the board. A few of their passing plays, they did complete, you know, a guy had fallen down or something else happened here and there. That's going to happen. But all in all, Florida wins this football game because USF passed the ball too often. They were sort of their own worst enemy. They should not have done it. I was was able to make plays. Yeah. Florida was able to make plays that, that cost them every single one of their turnovers came in the passing game. All three of them, two picks and the fumble all came as a result of passing plays. So, if it weren't for the strength of Florida's team, which we said they would be, this game is probably a loss.
1: Yeah, and I I do want to say I was impressed by Marshall.
3: Oh, yeah. Great. I Fantastic.
1: Mean, so, it's a little tactical note here. There's a few moments where they were com- completing a few easy passes where the corners were very, very far off. Right. Correct. And that got noted on the broadcast. I think everybody saw this. So, this is this has been a little bit of a, a topic from even people who are just casual fans. So as you look to the film, were we doing that a lot and they just only occasionally attacked it? Or were they busting us with that when we did it? And maybe just the larger meta question of like, what benefit we're trying to gain from playing so far off? Or is that just error?
3: Well, so I think a lot of the fans are not seeing what on TV. You can't see what happens after the snap is happening. So a lot of times we're off, but we're in that off man technique I mentioned. And Kimber got the pick starting seven yards off. And in previous years, Florida fans are freaking out, of course, because that would be me backpedal. And that was it. We're gonna give that play up. We didn't. It was a touchdown, right for us. They did catch us, I think, twice from memory, where we were dropping back into like a cover three, expecting deep routes, and they hit a short route on us. That's gonna happen in every game, for sure. Yeah. So but that's why I, I wanted for, to. Yeah. Point for our defense, I think we're all a little bit scarred and on edge. Like if we see, like, oh my gosh, it's happening again. But you have to remember that in normal environments, part of your job as as a defensive coordinator is to kind of say, okay, maybe their tendency at this yard line is to throw deep here. Let's just keep this safe. And if they happen to hit us with underneath pass, good for them. And they caught us like, again, I think twice. Other than that, we were generally all over what they were running. And you can do that without having to be impressed, man. And again, that pick came from off man technique. So keep that in mind. So no, there was no concern for me in Florida being too soft. We spent a whole lot of the game putting as many guys as we could in the box, playing very aggressively and they still really couldn't pass the football on us. I mean, this is a solid outing from the pass defense here in this game against a team, of course, that wasn't going to, to really challenge us with the pass. But all in all, when you're giving up 300 yards rushing and you're still doing well against a play action passing team, that's pretty darn good because you'd expect to be really paying for that on the back end especially if you're playing as aggressive as Florida was in the box. And we didn't, we did not really pay for that.
1: Yeah. So there are some defensive alignments, not the corner playing soft or having bad technique or like being afraid. Uh, now, if you're doing that too much and they're just hitting you with that over and over again, obviously there's something way wrong. It, it was only a couple times that I wanted to note that because I think that was a, a talking point. Uh, any other players that,
3: Impressed you that we just haven't got around to mentioning. Yeah, Dez had that monster tackle. That was awesome. Big Dez played a lot of snaps. If you haven't paid attention to him yet, I love watching 21 get in there. I think this is the worst we're going to see him. I think if he can drop, like we mentioned, 50, 60 pounds, That's wild which is to crazy that. to say that, but get to that 370 mark, you're looking at an NFL nose tackle. And for him to be as athletic as he is right now is insane. I mean, he shed the center on that play. Runs down the running back, picks him up and throws him to the ground like he's a rag doll. I mean, that was outrageous. That's absolutely outrageous. I mean, and that's a lot of snaps for a dude. So many snaps. And who
1: also, you know, the hard thing for these guys is if you're shuttling them on off the field, so far, that's a far run for them every time. You got to watch that for a guy like him. But yeah, I think I've been impressed by his stamina with the increasing number of snaps that we've given him.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's really standing out each and every week. And I already mentioned Boone, mentioned McClellan. Those guys really, I think. McClellan hardly played, but when he's out there, he looked nice. Boone played a little more, and he looks nice. I mean, he's a guy I think I would want to give more snaps to. For sure. He's making plays out there. He's always in the right place. He's making an impact.
1: And we haven't mentioned a guy like Tyreek Sapp, who um, feels like he's done a really solid job overall. He's a big-bodied dude. Still hasn't played a lot of football, obviously. But each of those guys... I think holds a lot of promise and has played well for the most part.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. And then I haven't mentioned Trevez yet. I got a comment on this is Trevez doing much better. Have you just not mentioned him? Well, he was pretty quiet the first two games. This game was, uh, you know, more of the classic Trevez stuff. He gives up a first down that should have probably been a pick six early in the game where he just is jogging, following his man across the formation on a motion play that we're playing man in. And Brian Cox, I mean, Brenton, Brenton Cox, sorry, Brian Cox, always a Dolphins fan. Uh, Brenton Cox comes through, and is blowing the play up. And it's going to be a pick. And they float a ball up there. But Trevez is like 10 yards behind the play. Inexplicably. It's his man. No idea. They convert another third down on him. And we're in man. And he just stands there. And the guy runs an in-breaking route for like 20 yards. I mean, I-, I can't explain this stuff. But he's still on the field. And sometimes he makes a nice play. He makes his best play on a play that didn't count. Because of offensive pass interference. Where he covers really well. So, is he as bad as last year? No, that was really bad. But does he look solid? No. He's still very questionable. You know, it's in the ranking of questionableness is linebackers, Dean, and then Travez still, as far as where we are. Uh, Perkins, I think, is just a guy where they got to figure out for him to learn the plays because that guy, if he knows what's happening, he's excellent. But it doesn't seem like he always knows what's happening. <laughs> so you just got to find a way to guide that guy. But that's kind of the the player update there. Uh, We'll be watching these guys, obviously, against a much better opponent in Tennessee to see who can start to kind of show up. And and I did hear Napier in the press conference mention, as they're moving through the season, as moving to Tennessee, you start to look at formalizing who's going to play more, who's going to earn more of that playing time. So they're they're using the early season to figure out who's going to be the guys that are going to get more and more snaps as the season goes on.
1: Yeah, this is probably a weird moment for the staff in this game, because if you're outlaying the season in terms of like the first three games you're probably looking at this USF game as like, we're going to get a chance to play a lot of people. It's hopefully not that dangerous. And I'll become a dangerous game. So fortunate or unfortunate in the long term, I'm sure they learned some things they weren't expecting to learn, but didn't get to roll out some of the stuff they were probably wanting to as well. They um, did not
3: but we should mention one play before yeah. we leave the defense and a few other things. USF ran a glorious flag football play oh, they for do. a two point conversion, which of course I love. And we've talked about this before. I think football is right for way more of those plays. Um, just the nicely executed play. You know, they kind of motion their receiver in, they throw it backwards past him. He catches it. All four of our defenders come up and he throws an easy pass into the back of the end zone. Um, it's one of those plays. I'm happy that happens to us in that kind of game, because in the future you want to tell Torrance who is the safety guarding the guy, Hey, if the ball is thrown back to a guy and there's no blocker on his side and we have four guys there, which we did, you know something is, something is afoot. You know that this is a trick. It's a trick. It's a trap. And just stay on the guy. Or just stay on the
1: guy anyway And if they beat those other three guys. Right.
3: My point is in general. But what you're taught, right, is get to the ball. So your instinct is, oh, that's the play. Get to the ball. But I think now – and this is Torrance's role. As Torrance is the back guy who's there, now I think he's a smart guy. I think he's got something – in his toolkit that he wouldn't have had that i think if it comes to fruition again perhaps he's able to realize that and say wait a minute this is a trap i'm gonna stay in this guy but either way nice play well executed by usf there all right let's talk special teams real quick here uh
1: no kickoffs because they were booting them out the back of the end zone there so that's been a talking point for us but uh continues to kick well for automatic the team, so far right 100 percent. big question mark but he's done well no it seems like the kickoffs were a little bit better this week they were well. better this week that's true so that's an improvement and Crosshaw continues
3: to be a nice little weapon for us he did muff one which was weird for him yeah totally muffed just a total miss but that's the first time i've ever seen him do that so you get a pass for sure um Coaching decisions? Yeah, I'm adding this. So I'm separating Florida stuff from coaching corner as to not confuse them. So we'll do coaching decisions before final thoughts on future podcasts. So coaching decisions. All right, Alan, did you like calling a timeout before USF went for the field goal to tie? Thanks for asking me about this, James. Uh, This is one of those things
1: where I want to slap every coach who does this. The best thing you could ever give a kicker is a live kick in those conditions from that distance. You absolutely cannot under any circumstances allow them to get a free kick. Now, I'm not a fan of icing, but I if you want to do it, fine. You cannot let them do that. That is awful. And you saw the results right there.
3: I mean, you saw the results. You you saw you saw them. I mean, he missed. No, not that one, the second one. But in general, question on that one too I got was why would you call a timeout there? on the field goal in the first place. Someone had said, why even call one? Um, Well, A, you want to ice the kicker. B, to your point now, and you said this really well. If you're going to do it, you got to do it before they're like ready to snap the ball. So the kind of offensive line gets out there and they're kind of like getting somewhat organized, timeout. The kicker still is going to stay on the field and think about it. But these these coaches that think they're going to really mess the kicker up by waiting until the end, have been out game theory by special teams that now say great just snap the ball just snap yeah, it there's as no soon as you're lined up no matter what happens snap it and kick it and in golf if you like golf what's the saying right the second guy is always better than the first guy so when you get a mulligan you're generally going to do better and the math supports this icing the kicker is is a suboptimal long-term thing to do but to your point if you want to do it just do it but do it early do not wait. Don't give the guy a free kick under any circumstances. It's beneficial to give the guy the kick. Now, obviously, Florida escapes with that last field goal. Wow! Where I think that guy's probably going to make it. He was really consistent, but the holder just drops it, and he somehow still almost makes that kick. Out that was almost a, that was a heroic miss. It was unbelievable that he got that much on it. A heroic miss is right, but Florida escapes with that. All right, got a lot of questions on this one, and this 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 is an assumption we're going to say. Because obviously right now, again, you have Kyle Engel, the guy we talked about, a walk-on, fun guy, nice guy, uh, you know, to talk about in that capacity, but not your actual backup, Jack Miller, who was still in street clothes. If Jack Miller was available for this game and— You're talking about for Tennessee? We're saying for USF, and it's the second half. Would there have been any thought for you to bench AR and put Jack Miller in if he's healthy and available and ready to go? Let's say he's had a fine week of practice. We're assuming he's not a train wreck and you know he can't play, but he's actually a true backup and he's available— any thoughts that you benched AR in that second half? In the second half of this second game. half of this game,
1: I'm trying to think about the inflection points. because I knew it wasn't a possibility. So I was
3: I was not yeah. calculating this right. So let's you know the, obviously the bad the really bad pick right. happens, which I haven't talked about yet, which I was waiting to talk about in this moment. But the, the pick bad, over the middle, where the he's pick over the middle where he's front. late, right? Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Especially when you if you hadn't had last week's data point. The no. It's just like a weird outing from him. Sure. Well, that's the
3: question that gets asked is you essentially have now another game.
1: So, not because his play was so poor in this game is what I meant to say. Right. right, right. correct? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, I don't know, man, because your ceiling is like AR ceiling. Right. Mm -hmm. So, to get to where you want to go this year and probably next year, if he's still here, right? But this year, certainly is how good can this guy play? So what does benching do to him? I don't know. But we are also in a game. If it's like, okay, we're still up 20 against USF, let the guy keep rolling it out there if you don't think it's going to hurt him. You're trying to win here? Oh, man, I don't know. Because that how you handle your quarterback is different than obviously how you handle anybody else in terms of team dynamics and things like that. But Florida was, well, again, let me put this caveat. The reason we were probably going to lose this game was defensively, not offensively. We we're still able to run the ball pretty much at will. So maybe you, maybe you fudge it that way a little bit. So I don't know. I'm going to say, uh, probably not, but let's say I'm in the same situation against Tennessee where the, the defense is playing well enough. Our offense is the thing that's hamstring us. I want to win this game. Maybe I make that move.
3: Yeah, I think I I definitely would have done it. You would have Um, done it against USF. I would have done it against USF. But I I am in the camp that benching a quarterback does not actually destroy him if you have a good relationship with the quarterback. and, And your team always understands that you have to do two things, what's best for the long term and what's best for that moment. And any human being in any sport has off days. Now, if you're a tennis player and you're playing singles, you can't sub yourself out in an off day because it's just you. But in any other sport, like basketball, for example, sometimes a guy's having an off day and he just plays less minutes. And that guy's confidence is not broken. He's not destroyed. This happens all the time. Very notable guys will sometimes get hardly any minutes in an NBA playoff game if the matchup's not right or things aren't working. So I find it very interesting in football. If you don't have like a, a proven guy, and AR is not a proven guy yet, and you're in jeopardy of losing a football game. And you have a guy, let's say Jack Miller is a four-star, right? Highly touted guy, guy you brought in, thought could run your offense, sitting on the bench. I think you give him a shot. I don't think you bench AR and say, this is the end for you. I think you take him out and say, look, I got your back. I need to give Jack a shot to see what's going on in this game, right? And yeah, of course, is AR going to be pissed off? Yes. He's going to go on the bench and ask questions? Yes. But the reality is you have a duty as a coach to do what's best to win the game. And At that point in time, AR makes a decision you cannot make under any circumstance ever, You cannot throw late over the middle blind, right? He was also wildly uncomfortable on that throw. His footwork was really bad. He's hitching three or four times. These are all things you cannot fix in a game. So it's one thing when a guy throws a pick where he's on time, he reads it well, and something happens. No problem. But when I see that stuff as a coach, I'm saying, oh, no, that's not good. That's we're really losing confidence. I cannot have this. I need to win this game. Let me see what Miller does. And maybe Miller goes in and you don't like what you see from Miller and you're right back to the long-term plan, right? Because the tactical deviation doesn't work. But I think the way things were feeling in that game with AR, I would have done it. And let's be real. I think it would have been justified. The only throw that Richardson really made that mattered was a jump ball to shorter when shorter just mossed that guy. And outside of that, it was all running. So I think for that reason and that reason alone, and it wasn't AR running. He wasn't giving you what you needed with his leg. I think a change of pace in the game would have been wise. It was not available, and therefore to bring a walk-on potentially, who I I do think Ingle is your guy, and I think bringing a walk-on, 6-foot, 190-pound guy in over AR maybe hurts AR's confidence to a level that's hard to appreciate. But if you had a guy who's a four-star, who's equally touted, different kind of guy, pocket passer, I think it would have been reasonable to do so. I think either track is reasonable, but I think there's justification for both of them. Florida wins the game. Thankfully, hopefully, of course, Florida can get AR right because I think AR ceiling is higher than Jack Miller's, obviously, athletically. Passing wise right now, though, AR's a broken passer. And I think against Tennessee, we're going to talk about this. If I'm Napier, I have to have a plan to put Miller in. If he's at all healthy and and already at all able to play, he hasn't practiced in a while. I have to think about that if the game is close and AR starts to break a little bit with what is going to be the primary job of a quarterback, which is to distribute and be efficient and effective. I have to consider that for the sake of my entire team.
1: If it happens a third time, I think it's now a pattern, right? Right. It's a pattern already, but then it becomes, there's something more deeply wrong here that it doesn't get fixed and we still have to win football games. Right. So I, I would agree. I, we don't know if Jack Miller will be ready to play this week. I would say that doesn't seem likely from like at
3: least, you know, yeah, progression. it doesn't, it doesn't seem likely, but I agree.
1: Okay. Uh, anything else on the final thoughts? Like, I mean, you have a note here, we have a note here and we've mentioned this, that if you're looking for silver lining, that UF's best players are Napier's guys. And I think that bodes well, that even that it's been a startling free fall offensively and defensively, you know, in back-to-back games that it, the overall trajectory of the team still feels like it's going up if you look at it from a certain angle.
3: Yeah. So we got asked the question if we were entering the dark timeline, something we like to discuss a lot here on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, and I, I don't think that we are in the dark timeline for the reasons that we mentioned, obviously. I do think that AR is teetering between entering the dark timeline himself personally. Hopefully he does not. But I think as a program, no, despite how bad these two weeks have been, despite this year could be a bad year. And I'm going to say here's why. Billy is a systems guy, and I like that. I love that. I want that in my coach, right? We talked about that. And I think he's a systems guy far more than he is a coaching savant individually, right? And what I mean by that is I think he needs his formula, his recipe, his algorithm to be in place before you're going to reach peak Billy Napier. So what do I mean by this? Billy Napier is not the guy I think that you would hire to take to go to your house, let's say, and say, look, you can only use these pieces I have in my house. And I need you to create something amazing from whatever I have available here. I don't think you call Billy Napier. You call Napier and say, I want you to knock my house down and rebuild the house to your liking. That's what you do. And I think he needs to have his own materials, his own stuff. He has to build his foundation. And therefore, that partly explains why UF could have a significant talent advantage over USF and still probably deserve to lose. Is I think Billy is viewing this as I'm putting my system in. I'm going to do what I do. It's won before. It's a winning algorithm. It's a winning recipe. And until that happens, there's probably going to be issues along the way, but I'm not going to panic because I know once I build this house, it's going to be great. Now we can debate whether or not, again, I've talked about kind of finessing being that systems guy, but then finding ways to win now because these players are only here for right now. Some of these guys, it's their last year. You can't just tell them, hey, I'm going to win two years from now when you guys are gone. You have a duty f- to try to make them win now, too. And I think you have to balance that out. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see what he chooses to do. I think Napier is more firmly in that formula camp. And if that wins, then no one's going to care as fans. No one, None of us are going to care as fans if this year is six and whatever. and It doesn't matter what's going to matter is what happens two and three years from now. And then what happens five and six years from now, he just increases pressure on himself. Correct. He does. But ultimately the end result to him could be the same. I think he's that kind of guy. So I want to put that out there that helps explain what's happening. He may not be that kind of guy. And as we always say in this podcast, our job is to analyze what's happening in real time. And then also try not to make predictions until it's time to make a prediction. So we tend to be pretty patient with what we say predictively, but then also pretty definitive when we say something which we could be wrong on about, Hey, it's time to let this guy go when there's been enough data. There's not nearly enough there, but I do think he's going to be in that formulaic system guy. And I think he's viewing this stuff as just, I haven't had time to get my guys in yet. I'm going to take my lumps and then it's going to be all on once I have my guys in there. And the silver lining to that is that his players are doing really well. And if you get more of them, perhaps the entire team looks like that. And then you have a different thought. So the dark timeline would be if he is a system guy that system is not working into the into year two he's not changing then we enter a dark timeline but right now that's still somewhere out in the distance
1: okay you want to move on to coaching corner
3: yeah let's do a few so b red's got one here uh what a zany insane game from troy and app i love state. it i mean App I State it. has as any team maybe ever had a more incredible three game stretch than app state has losing in North Carolina, with the zany onside kick recovery, they get the ball back. Another two-point conversion fails. They could have won that one. And then, obviously, the, the ending against A&M. And now this one? I mean, Troy is beating them all game long. And then they get the ball back. They run a little play to get close enough to throw a Hail Mary. They throw the Hail Mary short of the end zone. Short. Right? Not as short as Mitch Trubisky threw his yesterday. <laughs> but short of the end zone. And then, of course, this is game theory. It's why I love bringing this one up, right? So it used to be you try to pick it off. Then it was you bat it down. Well, now, what game theory, what do they tell you? Well, if I know you're going to bat it down, I'm going to have a receiver that doesn't try to catch it. He tries to catch the ball. You bat down. (laughs) So that's what happens. Troy perfectly gets up there, bats the ball down, right to the receiver, who then catches it and scores. Walk-off touchdown. Fans run on the field. Just mayhem. I loved it. I loved every second of it. The (laughs) The call from the home announcers
1: is amazing. I mean, as as a coaching corner, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, well, what I was going
3: to ask you is, yeah. what would you? Is it still wise to bat
1: the ball down? I don't know. I don't have the data on hail marys enough to to do that. I mean, I, I think it's like if you don't execute on it well enough, you're going to get screwed either way. But short, I mean, I don't know how you calculate that. In if you're the Troy coach, hey, if they throw it short and watch for this guy and you know it's just a kooky circumstance.
3: It is and that's the problem. You're tempted to say, well, this is what I would do. I'll tell you exactly what I would do. So one, I'm gonna play man to man. And then two, I've I have a bunch of guys back, right? I can put like eight guys back there. So I have man to man on their five eligible receivers and I have three guys who are free to do whatever the heck they want. Go to the ball. Yes. So that's what I do. I counter that. I'm also gonna sit there with that guy waiting for the ball. And if he catches it I tackle him. There's only so many things you can do, right? Um, there's no perfect way to do it, but what happens is it tends to be like a rugby scrum now where there's like seven, seven guys, guys all next yeah. to each other. Well, only two of them can really do anything, the two guys that are closest to the ball. And of course, it's fluky and unlucky, but I'm sure, I'm sure that Troy and their coaching staff is thinking long and hard about what they're going to do next time because they did everything theoretically right and they paid the ultimate price and they took an L. Oh, man. But, man, I mean, that's why, I mean, college football Saturdays and NFL Sundays, they're just magical times. Like the stuff that goes on, the live theater, the insanity, it's just insane. And speaking of the NFL, the Washington Commanders, in all their glory, decided to go for two with 10 minutes left when they were down 29-21. Uh, our, our, our listener on Twitter said that felt like that was early to force a two-pointer. Now, we've talked about this before, so I want to revisit this with you. Would you go for two there? Are you in favor of waiting until you have to go for it?
1: Uh, generally, I am. I, now, 10 minutes left is starting to get into that window but I hate chasing the points in the first half. I don't care what the chart says. You don't know
3: what's going to happen in the game.
1: So I would, I prefer to wait later. I know you're not on my side here.
3: Yeah, this is definitely, well, this is in the math EV side and you're seeing a lot of NFL teams do this because the thought is if you have to do it twice, right, you only need to get one and you have to score twice anyway. So therefore, do this
1: late in the game is, I think, and that's
3: when it's become very popular. So you're seeing a lot of teams do this in exact in this exact time, fourth quarter, 10 minutes or so, eight minutes, six minutes left. You're seeing them do it like that uh, because the math would say it is better. And so that's why they're doing it now. It's still close. Like the EV here is not like plus 10 percent, right? It starts to get pretty close. I'm going to go back to what we talked about earlier this season with factoring in going forward on fourth down against Kentucky. you got to factor in the expected value the human element, the momentum that's going on, right? Those three things that matter to decide whether or not it's worth it in that game. But in general, always follow the golden rule. Do whatever you think the opposing coach wouldn't want you to do. That's the best rule. Do that. Then put the max pressure on him that way. All right. Now let's thank some more patrons that have been with us for multiple years now. All right. Etn Jair Roseman and Etn. He's probably loving. He always loved his name, but I bet he really loves it now that he's like in the forefront here of Gatordom. All right, David Roberts, Scott
1: Stowell, Jordan Sasser, Stephen Kirkhoff, Garrett, Logan Wild. Logan, let's go. Logan played a lot of flag football with me. Zach Stokes, Logan Weaver, Daniel Call, David Foster, Nick Karras, Charles Sellers, Gary from Atlanta. <sighs> what a name. Gary from Atlanta. That's a great that's one. That's like a call-in like name That, that is like, a great That's Gary from Atlanta. Uh, Wilson Whitaker, Kara me. Zach Gass, Nathan Young. What up? Patrick Bowie, Thomas Ashley, Michael Reeves,
3: Chad Hannaford, Steve Paul. Why don't you take the rest there? All right, we have uh, John Porter Pei or P. Chen. Kyle Likatani. Dr. Kyle Likatani, Likatani. Yeah, I'm going Dr. Kyle Likatani. I'm heading to Tennessee with him this weekend. we got a nice house out there in the uh, in the Smokies. Uh, Glenn McGraw. What's up, Glenn? Scott Francis. Scott, Scott should get a shout-out for really helping to promote the podcast. He actually once put us in the UF Alumni Magazine. And Hello. Our, yeah, and a lot of you may have come from that without realizing it, but we picked up a lot of listeners there um Corey sprodlin justin seitz our basketball insider <laughs> our dear friend who's stuck living in tallahassee these days too bad for him he'll get back to gainesville hopefully one day matthew mitchell neil callahan or Callahan, perhaps jason sellers man illustrious crew here yeah here we go eric, eric Mutz. Mutts, yeah the legend eric Mutz, what a guy uh brian pietro alexandra smith from california Joseph Picario, Anthony Lapore, uh, Chris Fontana, love that dude. Yeah, Justin Helms, Kathleen G. Smith, Michael Lavin, Chris, Zachary Willers. Oh, who's this person here? <laughs> Alessia Williams. Did she really? She well, did at one point in time. Uh, okay, she dropped a dono they're as they're the first go as the first wife of the podcast. Yeah, she did it. Uh, David David. Sorry, David Steinfeld. Chris Yanes, Cody Davidson. Chris Hodges. Yeah, what up? Look at that. And then Dimitri. Amazing. Great stuff. Thanks, as Great always. Great people on that list. For all of your patronage. Thanks for the donos. Thanks for the love. We appreciate it. Alan, let's talk about the games we picked last week. Okay, we both did
1: fairly mediocre here. I went four and six. You went five and five. Puts me at 24 and 20 on the year, along with you. 24 and 20. Is that right?
3: That's right. We're tied. Man. Can you believe that? I can't. I know I can't. Well,
1: we, we picked almost... All of the same game. So, of course, we were probably pretty close together here. Uh, when we, we diverged, Friday night, Florida State, man, win late at Louisville, 35-31.
3: Are you impressed with Florida State's start?
1: I think I got to be a little bit. I mean, they they feel like they're stumbling, bumbling around the entire game, but they, they've been winning. They lose Jordan Travis in this game. They still won that that's a good
3: win for them. Yeah, they're certainly much more competent than they were in previous years, but they're certainly not a Florida a vintage, even remotely close no. to like what Florida State should be putting on the field just yet.
1: Okay. UGA just lays the wood at South Carolina 40 to 7. We talked about sometimes South Carolina, you know, gives them trouble. Not so in this one. I I don't know what that number would have to be moving forward for you not to pick Georgia.
3: Yeah, and you and I obviously were both heavy on Georgia here. I mean, South Carolina I thought was was significantly overrated, but Georgia And Kirby Smart just has this thing going. And it should be, for those of you that are worried about Napier, let me remind you that Kirby Smart started off not so hot at Georgia. Right. Not a great first year. A team that had more talent than Florida has but had issues, had gaps on the personnel side. And you know, by the by the middle of his second year, there were a lot of Georgia fans who were maybe pressing the panic button. And obviously now look at what's happening. Now he passed his three year test, it should be noted, but the first year was nothing to remark as beauty. That's for sure.
1: There you go. Oklahoma takes care of business against the Scott Frostless Nebraska 49 to 14. This line was only eleven and a half, made me a little nervous. Like what's going on here? No problem for Oklahoma.
3: Yeah, total free money. And, uh, you know, some schools just have all the luck, right? Oklahoma, no matter who coaches there, they're a juggernaut. They have tons of talent. They smoke everyone. Now they have a lot of of games ahead of them will be more difficult. But for now, uh, they've got things rolling out there.
1: All right, Texas Tech, NC State. NC State got it done.
3: They won. Yeah, I thought 10.5 couple... was just going to be too many points, but uh, NC State found a way to cover that. Yeah, twenty fourteen. 14 Close, of course, but they covered it, and you and I were falsely on Tech there. We were right on Cal
1: covering. Uh, They lose, but they do cover. Notre Dame wins 24-17.
3: Notre Dame fortunate to win that football game. That's for sure. I think, uh, again, we said this. Brian Kelly is a good football coach. We said it. We'll say it again. Marcus Freeman probably has the edge on him in recruiting. But right now, that Notre Dame team, they could be in for a difficult season. We both thought BYU
1: had a little more faith in them. They get job by Oregon. Oregon, impressive
3: here. They win 41 to 20. This was a great showing for Dan Lanning after getting dismantled by Georgia. And also, I think you really have to begin to ask, like, how good is Georgia? Yeah, seriously. Now, it's too early in the year. College football teams, notoriously, right, they're going to get a lot better as the year goes on. And Georgia, of course, big head start on teams with a returning national champion quarterback who, even though he's limited ceiling-wise, is very you know, familiar with the offense, runs it really well. Very They're effective. Having a great start to the season this year, numbers wise. They're super talented. But that, depending on what Oregon does throughout their next few games, is going to determine how just how nice that Georgia win looks. But either way, great win for Oregon. BYU is a, a game opponent and they handled them.
1: Man, Penn State lays the wood to Auburn 41 to 12. We both liked them in the game, but I don't think I expected this level would be down.
3: No, this was too much. Now, look, this Penn State team, it was a team that many had picked to, to, jump in the rankings because they started the season unranked. They are talented. Obviously Franklin tends to be a good coach, but you got to think now and our buddy, Chris Musgrove, our Auburn insider is is sort of, it's it's inevitable is what everyone is saying that Harson will be gone. The question is when will those boosters choose to make that move? It doesn't seem like he's going to make it past this season. If even past maybe this next game, perhaps
1: no, not a lot to recommend him. They already tried to fire him once. So, yep. All right. Mississippi state was up early. LSU claws their way back in and wins 31 16. I mean they basically shut out Mississippi State in the second half.
3: Yeah, we said the question was would LSU's secondary be able to play against Mississippi State and they had once before and they hadn't once before It's two extreme results and they they got it going. The problem of course with the air raid and Mike Leach, I watched this game, ran the ball way more than he has. Way more. Uh and I think he, you know, I think when you're in the SEC You have to start doing things that are perhaps uncomfortable for you. I think he knew he couldn't just stand back there and and continue to throw passes. You had to be, you know, at least somewhat right run oriented. And that worked until it didn't. And then LSU was able to just kind of clamp down Mississippi state and they just could not get it going. And at some point, again, if your talent in the secondary is, is too good, then you're in trouble. I would love to see a hypothetical world where Mike Leach has equal talent to another team to see what happens that'd be a great experiment. But as it stands, it's a good win for LSU. I think LSU fans early on they were they were down on that game. I think there was probably a lot of what have we done to ourselves here? It's still a weird fit there, but you know, Brian Kelly's a good coach, so I think you had to give him time to see what happens there. All right, we thought this line was weird. Washington
1: was favored by 3 over number 11 Michigan State. They really dominated this game 39-21. Michael Pinnix, you know, the former Indiana player looked good. Washington looks like just a
3: Totally rejuvenated program. Yeah, we obviously didn't think enough of it because we both picked Michigan State.
1: Well, you know, I mean, it was just so much unknown. <laughs> but, man, I guess if, if if there had been a line that's favored Michigan State, they would have just gotten murdered by the sharp betters.
3: Yeah, we should have. Well, we should have picked on Penix. I mean, obviously, Penix was great at Indiana. Right, but I just, we hadn't but seen much no, of Washington. I, I hadn't yet. seen Washington play at all, and I had seen Michigan State. Play, but, but I faded Mich. The funny thing is I faded Michigan State in my AP poll bracket where you pick who's going to finish in the AP or not, and I faded them all the way out of it. But I, I thought they would be within three and i was wrong washington was up 22 nothing in this game
1: yeah waxed them so i mean that's good for the pac 12 to have washington oregon usc playing well and then you know oregon state these other programs are playing well i mean it it's not there's no top top level teams but they're, they're a little more solid all the way through than i think would have been thought before the year all right uh and I guess the headliner we put it as the headliner, Miami, just puts in a poor effort against Texas A&M. They lose nine to seventeen. Texas A&M's defense is legit. They scored just enough points, but they don't really look all that much better offensively. Miami is probably frustrated that they didn't win this game.
3: Yeah, I mean they are who they are right now. A and M is a is <laughs> credit to to what's gone on there. We we talked about this when they made the hirings they did. On the defensive side of the ball, they got it rolling there in AM defensively, something that no one had been able to do. But now the offense is gone. Something that AM had rolling before. So it's a total reversal of like program identity. But not I don't I don't think I'm feeling good at all if I'm an A and M fan with the talent I have on that team. I have no offense and that feels like that's gonna really affect
1: it. Yeah, if you hadn't had those other results, like if you had one handily, you probably sure. go, Hey, Tough team, Miami, take the win. Offense didn't look great, but whatever. But now this is basically the whole season where you're not cracking 20
3: points. Yeah, Troy Troy drops 28 on App State. North Carolina drops 60, and you drop you know 14 or whatever. I mean, that's now 17 on Miami. I mean, it's not a great look.
1: All right, we've already mentioned a couple things here. Um, ASU does lose Eastern Michigan. Herm members is fired. That experiment has failed. Duke and Kansas, both 3-0. Lance Leopold just a absolute witch went going three and
3: know already at kansas yeah you're talking about basketball here though right not football
1: right no it's football, oh, this is football yeah huh?
3: yeah wow that's unreal kansas especially duke surprising but kansas i mean that's unbelievable
1: yeah i mean kansas has been a wasteland since they you know the mark mangino era and then a wasteland before that but this is they're riding high right now i mean they're you, I think you've already cashed the over probably for them.
3: No, I have, I'm sure. If you they bet on them, whatever they over
1: under. So that's really fun. Uh, we don't talk Kansas football very often, so there no, you go.
3: There it is. All right. The all kinds of weather parlay from Daytona. State.
1: Yeah. You know, he doesn't happen for him again. He gets goes two of three, loses on Troy App
3: State, gets Utah and USC right. But, yeah, didn't make it again. Yeah. Come on, Daytona. Uh, come on. Got to get it going. 0-3 oh, on the year, but another chance this week. He's got to stick with it, you know? SEC roundup Alabama murders Louisiana Monroe no surprise there after of course a classic Nick Saban rant before the game about how hey we're you know what's wrong with you guys like Louisiana Monroe's excellent I don't know why you tell our players this stuff blah 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 Uh, Kentucky beats Youngtown State 31 nothing what I took away from this game was that Kentucky's offense as we said is not good. Yeah, they 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 were not at very many points for a no, long time. It's not good. They're not good. That's not a good football team. They have an easy schedule, but I'm going to remain with my opinion. That's not a good football team. Arkansas survives a scare, and I mean this was nuts. They were losing almost the entire game to their former coach and all over the map. A lot of people's former coach, Bobby Petrino, but they win twenty eight twenty seven.
1: I think it might have been a little bit more. Of this. They have a late touchdown. I, a late. I thought
3: it was one at the end there, but B red yeah B red says twenty eight. B twenty seven. Real life says. Another touchdown out on the maybe
1: uh, punt return late, and then I think they tacked on another one. But yeah, they
3: were losing most of that game. They had to come way back. Yeah, they did, and that's nuts because again, you were like Missouri State, and you're like, oh yeah, that's right, Petrino's there. Tennessee beats Akron sixty three to six. No surprise there. Old Miss beats Georgia Tech forty two nothing. B red wonders if Jeff Collins is on the hot seat. Absolutely, <laughs> I would. I would be on the hot seat if I was losing like that. Lane Kiffin and Old Miss look this is a sign that your program's improved is like no one's talking about Old Miss just murdering these opponents, which is fine. Old Miss is, but that's consistency.
1: Yeah, they haven't played anybody yet, but they're but still they're a fun team.
3: Exactly. I was gonna say they haven't played anyone, but like for Old Miss, this is consistency. You're crushing all your inferior opponents. That's a good sign that your program's in the right direction, is when you start handling teams you should handle. Missouri beats Abilene Christian thirty four to seventeen. Missouri seems like they're way on the wrong side of things these yeah, days. Yeah, they're underperforming for sure then vandy again clark lee he's making me a believer they're three and one i don't care if they played alan they're three and one it doesn't even mention who they played on here it doesn't even matter it doesn't care they win 38 28 (laughs) in a close game they were on the road against northern illinois who is a powerhouse you know on the smaller football level kind of a fluky game for them but they were down back and forth either way they won two games last year they've won three now there you go clark lee best team in the name clark lee baby let's go all right. Drum roll, please.
1: It's Tennessee week. We both love this. We're 90s Florida fans. Love it. This is the one you've been waiting for. Apparently, this is the game of the day. It's a pretty weak slate. So, all eyes on Florida, Tennessee. It's 3.30 on CBS. College game day is there, as you mentioned. UF is 2-1. Two, two and one. Number 11, Tennessee on the cusp of the top 10 there. Probably should be 10th rather than Kentucky or something like that. But- yeah, for sure. Tennessee is favored by 11. That, that's an interesting number there. It's either way too high or way too low, depending how you feel about where Florida is at right now. Josh Heupel, in his second year there, former Oklahoma quarterback, turned coach, most recently at UCF. Slide talent advantage for Florida. And returning starters, for uh UT 8 on offense 9 on defense there. Yeah, which
3: is which is a big reason why people yeah. were high on them this year. They're not super talented um, but they are they are experienced.
1: Yeah, their coaching staff um, also obviously in their second season, Alex Golish the OC and Tim Banks the DC. All right. Uh definitely more high profile offensive Team, right? They struggled on defense last year. They've been better this year, but they haven't really played anybody who would threaten them at all. So that's something to look out for. Hinden Hooker, the transfer from a couple of years ago from VTech, 844 yards passing, six TDs. Jalen Wright, the running back, he gets the majority carries for them, three TDs. Jabari Small, the other guy, 231 rushing, three TDs. Um, Jalen Hyatt, Cedric Tillman, those guys are legit wide receivers. They get the majority of the tar- targets. They both have a little around 250 yards receiving, a couple touchdowns for them. This is a an offense that moves the ball, and when they're clicking, they're very difficult to stop. Hindenhooker, Hooker, big arm, athletic guy. They do spread you out, as you said. You love this offense. They threaten you in a lot of different ways. Anything. Well, just tell us about it, but especially I'd like to know, are they doing anything differently this year than they did last year?
3: That's a great question, and if you want to see really what they do visually, check out the film review from last year. I go in-depth on a preview of Tennessee. You can also check out the post-review, but actually I previewed Tennessee last year talking about their offense because Hypo was new. I'm not going to do that this year because it's the same stuff you've seen before. They're not doing anything differently this year. They're running what they run. They're just better at it because they're in year two and Hooker's got a year of experience. They still run it more than they pass it, which is always surprising. And I think a lot of people's minds, they're just slinging it all over the yard. But they do run it 55% of the time. And the quarterback does run it quite a few times right. per game. So to expect that. Right now, they're top 25 in points per play and points per game. They're top 10 in a lot of passing categories. They're averaging almost 11 yards per pass, which is nutty. That's number two in the country. They spread the field all the way to the end. Nobody in the country spreads the field as wide as they do. I love that. I'm a huge fan of it. Of course, I'm biased. It's the same thing I do when I play flag. Um, but it creates a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure that that is going to be put on your secondary and on your coordinator to choose how to defend because you're so spread out, you cannot do things to can really confuse your opponent unless you get creative. And we're going to talk about what that kind of creativity looks like here in a minute. They run a lot of vertical routes. They also run a lot of two on ones of any one of your safety of your linebacker, etc. The good news about Tennessee still at this stage of year two of their development is they're just a middling rushing offense. Despite wanting to run the ball more, they're not there yet. Their offensive line is pedestrian Uh, They'll run a lot of zone read, a lot of play action, a lot of RPOs. So they throw a lot of stuff at you. I'm a little bit concerned for the future of Tennessee because (laughs) they're only going to get better at this stuff if they can get better talent there. And that's going to be really scary if that happens. But for right now, there's enough inconsistencies that you you can play with them, despite the fact that the scheme really asks, again, a lot of questions of you. They've thrown no picks thus far. Uh you can get pressure on their offensive line. That's been a weakness they've had, is teams are able to press them pressure them. Pitt got three sacks on them, pressured them multiple times. The good news for Florida is they do not target their tight ends often. Only nine targets all year long, eleven between all their tight ends, and two of those are just totally throwaway games. Whereas the receivers, just two of their receivers alone, have gotten fifty targets. So they're heavily targeting two guys which is good from a game plan perspective. They also almost never throw their running back passes. That's also helpful. So again, when you're game planning for them, there are some things they like to do and don't like to do that you can help with. Of course, they're going to add wrinkles in. they're going to throw the ball to the running back against Florida. You can guarantee it. And they're also going to use their tight ends. You can guarantee that too. But those are the tendencies. So as you said, Alan, I love this offense. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it because of the pressure that it's going to put on Florida on Saturday to cover the entire field. I want to talk about what Pitt did against them. Pitt played them last year and this year. It's always great to look at an opponent who played a team in back-to-back years because the coaches have their own film to test their own schemes against and then tweak, which is why right division rivals in the NFL play such close games against each other, is they keep trying all these things to stop each other. You guys know how much I love man defense. You also know how much, if I'm an offensive coordinator, I want teams to play man against me. It's kind of like a, a both sides of the thing. If I'm an offensive coordinator, I want to see man if my team is talented because that allows me to take advantage of what's happening. Pitt, and I asked and I asked you this before the show, but Pitt, their plan against Tennessee, and I want you to guess this. If you're in your car, or you're you're on a jog or something, how many snaps in this game would you wager that Pitt played? Cover zero. Again, no safety of any kind. Cover zero in this football game. And if you guessed that they played 28 snaps in cover zero, 28 snaps out of 42 total passing snaps were played in cover zero, you would be correct. They played seven more snaps in cover one. That means 35 of the 41 snaps they played against Tennessee We're in man defense.
1: I mean, that is committing. That's going all in.
3: That's committing. And that's what you have to do. We talked about this last year. That's how you have to try to stop this offense. Here was the success that they had employing that strategy. Allen, it's pretty impressive. They forced six punts. They had one stop on downs and they forced one fumble. They stopped them eight different times in this game. Pitt had a lead in this game. It went to overtime Pitt did all this with eight total four stars on their roster. Pitt's 48th in the composite, Tennessee's 19th, Florida's 12th. Not a single one of those four stars is a corner or a safety. So they did this with a bunch of just guys, right? But they executed their scheme very well. So that's the hopeful part if you're Florida. I said before the year I picked Florida to win this game because of the matchup I thought favored Florida because this is our strength. We can cover people. And I do think Tony, and we're going to find out what he's made of in this game. This is where he's going to show us how creative he is as D.C. Because this is not a game you can line up and play static zone or other stuff. And you've got to do some some unique things here if you really want to shut this team down. Especially because Florida is not Alabama where we can or Georgia where we just have enough talent at linebacker and D-line that we can still play too deep and trust that we're able to slow them down. So And Florida has
1: the corners to... To try this, that's right? the key,
3: right? So, do you think that Florida could get away?
1: We you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but like going dime or just playing one linebacker and hoping that playing five defensive line and basically taking the linebackers out of the game and pass coverage and playing away now again? That's not playing, that's, that's leaning more into zone. Is that something else you can try and employ too? So, I
3: think you, it's a barbell strategy with Tennessee. This is going to sound funny. There's two choices. You either play like Pitt does, all out, zero, a lot of zero. Just zero with pressure all the time. Pressure, 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 cover zero. And then and then Pitt was really smart. There's two things Pitt did in that strategy that were really wise. One is they would set their slot defenders about 10 yards off the ball. And the reason is you want to create levels because Tennessee is going to run a lot of routes that are intended to beat certain defenses. So basically they high load it. So if that wide receiver runs a slant and the slot receiver runs like a corner or an out, they could just switch. So they're playing man, but they're pattern matching. So that's complicated. It's also really smart. They were really good at taking away hookers first look. So one is you play that strategy. I prefer that strategy because I think Florida is more athletic than Tennessee is. And I think that's our strength. The second is you got to mix in, I think playing Arkansas style defense where you're going to drop you know, eight, even nine guys into coverage because Hooker is not accurate and he's not a great reader of the field. A lot of these throws are just one-on-one bombs to a guy who beats someone in man. If you can put enough guys into the throwing lanes, once these plays break down, there is no more play, right? So a lot of it is like a quick one-two read and the ball's out. So if you take those two away, there's nothing there. Now, Tennessee absolutely shreds cover three, cover four, any standard zone defense. If they know you're in it, they're going to run these beaters we talk about. So you cannot let them know. But if you're creative, like an Arkansas style, and sometimes you might just drop a bunch of guys back, which we saw Georgia do this in past years, right? Occasionally to send everyone back into pass coverage, enough to keep them honest, to keep them thinking about it. I think that can work well. So I would employ that barbell strategy. I want to play a lot of man, And then at times I'm going to just send everyone back in a way that Hooker doesn't recognize it and take my chances. I catch him. Maybe I get a pick, maybe I put something into his mind where he's not sure what's happening and then I can line up those simulated pressures where I'm going to put seven guys in the line, look like I'm coming after him in man and then I can send them all back.
1: Yeah, so barbell meaning nothing in the middle that's safe, like either extreme
3: cover or extreme
1: drop in the zone. Tendency,
3: and that's why I like this offense is if you're playing offense, one of the number one things you want to do is you want to clarify the picture for your team. So if every single week you face a lot of man, that's great because you can get really good at that. But if each week, like Florida's facing right now, teams are employing a variety of things against you, then Richardson is not gaining any experience against any one thing. And I think a large part of Hooker's development is he's seen these plays so often now and defenses defend in the same way. Oh, great, I've seen this cover three. I'm going to run this beater. Boom, hit it, right? That's the beauty of Heupel's offense. So I think Florida's got to go one way or the other. You can't give them things they're comfortable with because then you're just relying on the wild card of Hooker to miss a throw, which he will do plenty of times. And to me, that's the X factor of this game, Alan. So yeah, is la- Hooker himself.
1: Yeah. So last year, Tennessee hit like two huge plays,
3: as they're prone to do, and then largely did nothing. What did Florida do last year? Well, I think we we talked about this. Tennessee was not quite ready. It was early in the season, and we said this early install. Again, take some confidence here. Early install for Hypo. I love that they put on film. They were playing Milton. They didn't even know who their quarterback was at that point in time. I would make the argument that last year's film was not really instructive for Florida because we just caught Tennessee at the exact right time. Had we played Tennessee at the end of the year, things would have been totally different. And that's what we're going to face now. So if I'm Florida's DCs, I'm probably throwing, I'm throwing the tape out from Florida, Tennessee last year. And I'm only looking at what they started to do towards the end of last year. And especially what Pitt did. That, I think, is really, again, the key. Um, Florida, of course, did play some man against Tennessee in that game. But I think Florida was largely successful last year because we got a lot of pressure. And again, it was Milton and then hooker and they didn't know what was going on. Milton wasn't nearly as good at hooker was at throwing the ball. They discovered sort of hooker was the better guy later, but long story short, Alan, this game is going to come down to specifically, I think hooker. If he has a a game where he just misses some of these big throws, which he will, then Florida's got a shot because the risk reward of this offense is if you average 11 yards per play, You're throwing a lot of deep balls and if you miss deep balls, now it's third and 10, right? Right. Second and 10 becomes third and 10. Second and 10 is a touchdown. Second and 10 is also third and 10. So you can put them behind the sticks and when you put them behind the sticks and you have our kind of cover corners where there's not a lot of space there, you can put pressure on them. So, I think that is going to be part of the recipe is that you can count on Hooker being inaccurate at times. You have to hope he does not have an on game. And then I think you trust the fact that Florida's got it on paper like its corner matchups with their receivers. And they are not deep, Allen. They are not deep. They have two guys who are really good, and everyone else is just a guy. So, it's not like Florida when we were rolling out our five wide where we had Pitts, right? And Tony, and we had all these guys that could uh-huh. hurt you. Those are their two guys, and those are their wide receivers. Florida should be able to match that up. So that's the encouraging part. The hard part, again, is the scheme. They're going to spread us way out with our linebackers. Let's get to the dirty side of this thing. What what role do the linebackers play? Well, ideally, they're going to be the ones that are going to get into some of these slant windows, some of these man-to-man crossing routes to make sure they help out. That means they have to read the play-action steps correctly. This is a major problem for Florida on a million different levels we have been eating those play action fakes like a cookie all the time yes we're generally eating them in the wrong direction into the wrong gap and if that happens now you're asking your corners to guard their receivers sometimes in man across the entire field with no help underneath if the linebacker just sucks into a play so this is a game where thankfully our linebackers have been better at getting into those passing gaps Right, that's better for us than they are in run fill. And in run fill, they're not that deceptive. It's a zone read. It's still going to be spreading you wide, so you're playing smaller numbers in the box. Florida, in theory, should be able to gap fill better than what a team like USF is doing, where they're bringing you know guys in motion. They're doing all this different stuff. They've got an H back in here doing stuff. But make no mistake about it, Hypel's going to employ. A lot of the same stuff he saw USF do using his own H-back, using receivers in motion. He'll just add that in. It's a very simple wrinkle to help his running game. So this game is, is, is going to come down to this simple scenario where I don't know what to expect because Florida's linebackers are such a wild card that on one hand, you like your corners versus their receivers matchup. I like our D-line versus their offensive line, especially in pass rush. And I just do not have any idea what to expect from our linebackers. And if Tennessee can run on us, Alan, forget about it, turn out the lights, they will run us out of Neyland Stadium. They will murder us if they can run the ball with any kind of consistency. Pitt was very successful in slowing their run game down, and that's what you have got to do. So that's going to be oddly where this game relies. Typically versus Tennessee, it's in the passing game. But this particular game is going to be with Florida's run defense. If it can just be average, I think we have a chance to slow them down enough to give ourselves a chance
1: agreed. And they're, and they're not patient. I mean, they will run the ball forever. They're going to want to take those deep shots. They want to fire the ball deep. And if you can make a play, if you can hit hooker, there will be opportunities for Florida to make plays in this game, which gives me a little hope, right? Defensively, that they're not going to be patient enough just to take the, you know, run game. Although if they're gashing you and those linebackers are in the passing lanes that make you wait for a second to, for the right window,
3: it's just gonna be a long, long day. It could be. And that, that's why Tennessee is a, is a scary team, I think, for any coordinator to face, is you're aware that they can score quickly on you, and that can unravel your team. It's like a haymaker after haymaker after haymaker, and it's emotionally very hard to deal with. Uh, but Pitt, two years in a row, has done a great job dealing with it. And that's some that's some really good film, I think, for, for Florida to look at. And of course, you can look at what other SEC teams did last year, but Pitt's a great one because Pitt didn't have a lot of talent. So you can tell your inexperienced guys, hey, look, you know what? You're faster than these guys at Pitt are, but they did it right. Here's how you do it right, right? Don't just be an athlete, be smart, use their scheme against them.
1: Okay. UT's defense, which depending on how you want to look at the numbers, is either on the rise or just hasn't played anybody yet. Uh two people to note for them Aaron Beasley, the linebacker, Kamal Hayden, their corner, who apparently
3: has a zero QBR despite getting nineteen targets. Yeah, he's shut down thus far, and on film he's really nice. The good news is their other two corners are not, and it can totally be had. But that guy, that guy, Haddon, is having a great start to the year. Again, played against Pitt. Pitt has Slovis, but receiving core is weak, and then two overmatched opponents. But I don't care. If you get 19 targets and not a completed pass been made against you, that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. So, yeah, this is an interesting thing to look at because
1: I, I don't know that the – the game film so far would tell you like, here's what Florida should obviously do, especially with given Florida's limitations passing the ball. So if you're looking at Tennessee defensively, what are you seeing?
3: Yeah. We talked about this last year and this year, Tennessee is very organized on defense. I made the claim last year that I think they're going to continue to improve on defense because they were so well organized. Like they just didn't have the talent yet. That's still true this year. It's just a better version, but it's not going to be dominant. They still don't have the talent there, but they don't commit a lot of penalties they line up correctly stat wise even thus far they're just middling in pressure interceptions they're middling against the pass they're excellent against the run sure overmatched opponents but they are excellent against the run and they do keep everything in front of them so they're going to want to make Florida drive the ball down the field that's going to be their thought is they're not going to give you a big play they're going to force you to earn it make consistent plays I think for Florida it's hard to know right now, who and what Florida is on offense. And I think one of the problems I'm having this year entering this segment is normally I could tell you, this is who Florida is. With Trask, we did this. Or last year, we were a running team and we weren't good at it. And here's what's happening. But right now, since virtually everyone's defensive plan has worked, since they've eliminated those play action plays, those rollout plays, which Utah, we hit those on Utah. That probably changed the game for us. But with those being out of the picture, anything has worked against us. Man to man, cover 3, cover 1, cover 4, cover 2. They've all worked. So I think now it's like what should Florida expect from Tennessee? I think Tennessee is going to is going to take potentially more from USF's playbook than from Kentucky's. Now, Tennessee has surprisingly played a lot more man this year. They're typically known as a zone team. They played man like 37% of the time, which is pretty surprising for them. It's a big shift. But I think Tennessee might be tempted to say, look, Florida's making enough errors as it is. Their running game is really good. It's much easier to defend the run in zone, which USF did well. Let's try to start off safe on the back end, play a lot of zone and load the box and see if we can't survive that. And I think their secondary plan will be to go to the Kentucky plan which Kentucky played a lot of zone too, but Kentucky played, you know, at least 10, 12 snaps in man. So I think Florida is going to find a similar scenario where teams are going to say, AR is not going to be able to run the ball to his right. We're going to commit an edge defender. We're going to send a safety that blitzes in there. We're going to scrape exchange our linebacker. We're going to force him to go left and we're going to force him to throw. So that part's predictable. How they choose to do that on the back end with what coverage they can do is anyone's guess. So far they run cover three, cover four in man. So you're going to expect some mix of those things. I think they'll be comfortable running their base defense until proven otherwise to see how they handle Florida, leaning more towards stopping the run like every single team is going to do. Right. And that's the hard thing is like good AR can
1: defeat those coverages fairly easily.
3: Yeah, correct. I think that's why I like the matchup beforehand is they play zone and they often play static zone and that was where AR would really get them. And they're going to have to commit more
1: guys into the box to stop the run game. which they is to better, do better. Correct. They must and do that. So it's there. If he can play well, this is a nice matchup for Florida. If he doesn't play well, we might struggle to move the ball with any kind of consistency.
3: Yeah, and so this is the thing that's interesting. Is We, we said the reason there's hope for me creativity-wise as a play designer and play caller is that our offensive line should be able to pass protect very well against Tennessee. We should be able to handle that. That means that you can get creative and you can do some stuff. Are we going to that? I don't know, but I think we could create our own space against Tennessee and see how they handle that. Especially if AR is more healthy, add in some of that speed option, go a little bit more four wide. Even if you're going to go with 11 personnel and you go three wide, spread those guys further away from the formation, put pressure on their front seven to deal with Florida in space rather than condensing everything that has not been working very well for our passing game. Uh, I think that, is an avenue that can work for us because our offensive line, I think, is up to that challenge. If we try to run the same stuff we've run against Kentucky and against USF and we stick to a lot of 12 personnel keeping the field bunched, it's hard for me to find narratives where it's going to look any different than it has. Tennessee is just a better version of um, USF and it's at least the same as Kentucky. Again, Kentucky secondary was not good last year. This year it's probably going to be the same eighth or ninth in the sec Tennessee is similar to that so it's not an uptick or a downtick but we already saw what that looked like it's hard to just imagine all of a sudden things are going to be awesome per se so it's hard to know in fact maybe the hardest to know in quite some time I think as a Florida fan even as an analyst watching every snap on film I don't really know what to expect from Florida Um, yeah no one does and, and what to expect from AR. Other than that, I think it would be shocking to me, Alan, if he came out and ran Napier's offense, which involved a lot of his back-turning play action, and it was good. That would surprise me. That would surprise me. And if we have to win the game doing it that way, I would say we're not going to win. That just doesn't seem likely based on what I've seen on film. But I, I would love to be surprised because that would be the best-case scenario for all of us if he was comfortable in Napier's actual offense.
1: Yeah, so this is the, this is the hard part that we're going to get to predicting this game is what are we going to get? And you're gonna to have to like either go in and say Florida's not gonna be able to do it and predict the big loss, or I mean, I guess you you know it's tempting to hedge too that you may get some good, some bad. I don't know. Uh, but before we get to there, the categories: special teams advantage, Florida penalties advantage, Tennessee. Good for them. Uh, turnover ma- margin, of course, advantage Tennessee. Time possession. Roughly a push there.
3: Yeah, neither one of these teams possesses the ball for a long time, despite the fact that Florida, in theory, would want to. Mm -hmm. Our defense has just been on the field for so long that we have been unable to, whether it's because the offense can't stay on the field or vice versa. And Tennessee is the opposite. They score quickly. They have quick possessions. So they generally do not possess the ball, which is, of course, the narrative for Florida to win. Control the ball, right? Keep the ball away from Tennessee. Frustrate them because their possessions are short, and then therefore you know, kind of grind them out of the game.
1: Okay, so there's – again, we don't really have injury updates during this time of the week anymore. It doesn't seem like the guys we've talked about, Ventro Miller, Michael Tarka, and Jack Miller, are going to play in this game. Um, that could be different. You could be hearing this on Wednesday and know that, that that's untrue, but at least from – this timetable
3: and we should mention that barber yes has been a really nice fill in for tarquin for he sure it hasn't been really a really nice off. game against usf he got he got better from from kentucky to usf and so that's been a, i mean in years past when one alignment went down and we were dead it's been great to have him fill in you don't really notice it so hats off to him and, right. and again so, still so, s- sad for tarquin to be missing time
1: yeah tarquin that, that that's less of a relevant factor now with barber playing well still would like to have him back of course Uh, If nothing else, then you have another capable offensive lineman ready to play. All right, why don't you move us to
3: the next segment here? All right, next segment is game prediction. So first, keys to the game, Alan, what do you got?
1: Man, I'll start with the defense, which feels a little more, um, I guess, easy to think about, although there's a lot of question marks there too. Uh, I think we're going to have to turn them over. We're going to have to pick off Hinden Hooker, and we're going to need two of those, and we're going to need at least three sacks. So those would be the key numbers there. And, again, you you want to look at it the other way, rush yards, I think we're going to give up rush yards. But um, if we're not making big plays, if we're not stopping them, I don't think Florida has a chance. And and on offense, I, I don't really even know how to make a prediction here because I think we'll be able to run the ball with some success. The numbers won't be bad. They may not look, they won't look like, I don't think like they did against USF, but um, are we getting good AR? Or are we getting bad AR? Even if we got bad AR, but he didn't throw interceptions, I think we have a good chance to win this game. So this is too reductive, but let's just say AR, no interceptions.
3: Okay. I like it. All right. For me, I'm going to go on offense that we need 200 yards passing which seems like nothing but we have not come close to hitting that yet so if 200 yards passing will be will mean we're passing competently and if that's happening i think we're moving the ball um if we get to 250 or 300 i think you can you can bet that this is going to be a really close game if not an outright florida win if we hit that number that goes in conjunction though with defense because you need both of these to hit to win this game and on defense i think that we have to hold them They're going to get passing yards. Sure. You just really can't prevent that from happening to a certain level. But if we can hold them to under 100 yards rushing, then I think this is a game that Florida is going to be very competitive in on defense. So we want to go under 100 yards rushing on defense, and then we want to go over 100 yards passing. And then I think Florida's got a shot to keep this game close. It's hard to see Florida in any scenario handily beating Tennessee. This is a game where Florida just needs to be in it, be in it, be in it, be in it, and steal it sort of at the end. Um, I think that's what we're looking at here. So those are the numbers for me. All right, it is prediction time, Alan. Uh, I, you get to I go, will first, go first I will go first here. I'm looking at little Peyton. He's looking at me. He's only lost one time. You know, I picked him up in the mid-2000s on the road there in Tennessee. And if you are not familiar with little Peyton, I always have to give you the little story of little Peyton. But he is a a water bottle technically but he's an awesome looking one. He's got the full power T on the helmet. He's a full football player, all decked out in pads. And uh, he's not a white guy. He's actually a black guy, which makes it great. But he's little Peyton because at that time, and probably still to this day in Knoxville, if you go to Tennessee, everyone loves. You will see a lot of Peyton Manning jerseys. Everywhere. They all talk about Peyton, Peyton this, Peyton that. And so we named him little Peyton after Florida had a, had a win. And he's been with us ever since. And he doesn't like to lose. He just generally wins. And I can see from the look on his face that he's not happy that I'm going to have to predict Tennessee to win this game. It's been very rare that I've ever done this. But if there was ever a year for Tennessee to win, it would be this one. And I hope they don't. Uh, but I think the film and where we are and what we put on film versus what we what they've put on film seems to indicate that's the case. Predicting the score of this game seems really difficult. Uh, but I'm going to go with Tennessee 30. And I'm going to go with Florida 20. So Florida to cover there, I think Florida's going to cover there. Yeah, I do. I think I mean Tennessee is look Pitt, Pitt probably should have beat them. Pitt's not nearly as talented as we are, but we have we have major issues on film, and so the only way you can say Florida's going to win this game is not based on film. It's based on hope, and that that may come true. It's college football. That's what's beautiful, right? Week in and week out, every matchup is different. So, but for me, I think Florida is going to be within that eleven.
1: I think this is going to be a, kind of a nightmare game for Florida.
3: Could be. That's that's very well could be.
1: Uh, the stuff that I was talking about, I didn't even put them in the keys of the game, but I feel like they're going to be able to run the ball, which is going to put a lot of pressure on us. Then we're dead. Forget it. And They're going to murder us. If we turn the ball over on offense and we get hit with big plays. So I'm going to go 35-13 Tennessee.
3: Yeah, and if they can run the ball, I think that's – and then if our offense can't score, then obviously if they can run the ball, they're going to score. They're going to score on us. There's no doubt about that. So uh, that pains me to say it, but
1: last last week I took a little middling effort. And I ended up
3: hitting our score. You were you were pretty darn close, actually, to what to what really was there.
1: But that was because I didn't know. And we got we get we did get both of that kind of. We got yeah, some we good stuff in the first half, bad stuff. In but the second it was
3: bad. Half. Ultimately, thirty. Steve Steve told me I was sitting with Steve Seitz, the brother of Justin Seitz, and he told me before the game that if Allen's prediction is correct at thirty seventeen, we're going to be really unhappy. And I agreed with him. <laughs> and obviously, we walked out in a, in a far worse scenario than thirty seventeen. So you well, at least had your finger on the pulse that that game was going to be close. I
1: thought it was wonky offensively. I didn't really, I didn't know how far we we're going to fall defensively.
3: Right, and so that's why predicting this game. It feels weird to think that you know maybe we only lose a ten by UT in my prediction, but um, but I think any I, I don't have a good feel for this game at all. And I I think you and I both tend to have really good feel for where Florida's at, but this is a classic like. Look up other great coaches, and I'm not saying Napier's a great coach yet, but look up the ones that became great. And in year one, there's a lot of really bizarre, weird results. It's hard to predict.
1: Okay. Let's hear from HelloFresh. That's better news? It's America's most popular meal kit. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit convenient takes away all the time for having to brainstorm meals check what foods you already have everything already comes out measured out so it's quick and easy so if you want 65 percent off meals from hellofresh go to hellofresh.com slash gnfp 65 and use code gnfp 65 for 65 percent off plus shipping that's quite a large percentage off there james that's hellofresh.com slash gnfp
3: 65 it is quite a large percentage indeed. And uh, I'm sure Little Peyton is going to enjoy eating some HelloFresh after hopefully some shocking Florida win. Because he believes. There's no doubt looking at Little Peyton right now, Alan. He do not think we're going to lose. He doesn't know losing. All right, week four slate. We've got West Virginia favored by three over Virginia Tech. This is a game that uh, I have no idea what's going to happen. So why don't you pick first? <laughs>
1: i mean this is a weird one um both these teams are pretty unpredictable oh man i guess i'm gonna go virginia tech here but i don't feel good about that at all yeah i'll take west virginia
3: but i mean really i'm i'm guessing and what did i say i times. said i said virginia tech you i'm can't. at west virginia can oh, I, can oh, I change oh okay that? all right fine yeah sure you I'll, can change I'll yours if to you it. want no too. no i don't want to change it all right number 17 baylor At the Clones. And the Clones favored by two and a half. Baylor does not look good. This is your playoff team, Baylor. You and Dez Dez Howard over here. They did not look
1: good either the last two weeks. The Clones are undefeated.
3: uh, Yeah, I hate picking against the Clones, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to stick with Baylor here. Yeah, I'm going to go with Baylor here too. I know they haven't looked good, but I don't know if the Clones are ready for this. Uh, Number 22, Texas at Texas Tech. Texas Texas survived. They struggled for a long time. Yeah. Survived. No healthy Quinn Ewers. The backup still hurt. Texas Tech's a game football team. I don't like
1: either of these two teams, really. Texas Tech didn't show me enough last week either. Texas getting six on the road. Man, that's terrible. I don't like (laughs) either. I go to pick one. I don't like either one.
3: Uh, I'll go Tech. I'm glad you went first because you know that no right. matter what I do with Texas, it's wrong. So I'm just going to pick <clears throat> where you picked to make sure you don't get a point on me. That's good so strategy. I'll take, take. Notre Dame at North Carolina. There's no line listed here. There has to be one. There's no way this is straight up. Maybe it is. Either way. Notre Dame, North Carolina. And B-Red went to North Carolina for grad school, so he's got to go heels on here. Maybe
1: he forgot the line just got real
3: excited. Yeah, I guess he did, but we don't have a line, so mm-hmm. we're going to pick it straight up. Uh, that? I'm going to go Carolina, of course. Yeah, hands down. I'm in there. All right. Oregon, number fifteen, Oregon, favored by seven at the Cougs of Washington State.
1: The Cougs are frisky too. No, they're frisky. They've been
3: playing well. The Cougs have sort of been forgotten about. They fired their coach, had all the stuff go down, a new coach, you know. But here they are. You know what? Give me, give me the Cougs. Oh, nice. Okay, I'm gonna go Oregon here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy that. <clears throat> they're riding the hype train after that after go for that it. performance against BYU. All right, number 13, Utah, who handled San Diego State last weekend, taking on Arizona State. Does this seem curious to you? This feels like a joke. Does this seem like a surprise here? What the heck is this? 14 and a half, yeah. 14 and a half? Please, Utah, please. Back the bus up right there. Back up the brinks. Feels like lock of the week type stuff right there. All right, Maryland, the Terps, my family, so many of them have gone there. At Michigan, Michigan only favored by 17.
1: And we haven't talked about Michigan yet. They're number four. They played just a series of no buff
3: games, three exhibition games. They've looked nice though. I'll take Michigan. They do look nice. Obviously they've been really successful last year. Kind of had a weird period of not recruiting so well. So no momentum yet, but this season they should be nice. Maryland beat SMU, which was a good win for Maryland, barely at home. So 17 points feels like, again, another nice pick here. I'm going to take Michigan. Sorry to my fam and all my Terps fans. All right, Wisconsin at Iowa State. Ohio Iowa State. Ohio State. Ohio State favored by 17 and a half over Wisconsin in this one. I don't have good vibes around
1: this game at all. Um, That number is high enough for me that I'm going to take Wisconsin.
3: Okay, interesting. I don't think Wisconsin can score more than 10 points on Ohio State. I don't know if Ohio State, the way their offense, which should be prolific, has sort of been in and out, but I'm going to take Ohio State.
1: Yeah, can Wisconsin play them the same way Notre Dame did is what I'm thinking.
3: Yeah, that's the question. Kansas State at Oklahoma. Oklahoma only favored by 13. It seems like Oklahoma not getting a lot of uh So Kansas State line respect here. Lost to Tulane.
1: Yes, right. And Kansas State was a dark horse pick to win the Big 12. I, I've liked them. Not anymore though. You know what? Give me, give me the Wildcats. Wow.
3: Okay, I'm shocking. I'm just taking, to stay taking, inside that number there. Yeah, I'm gonna ride the buzzsaw here, Oklahoma. All, All right. right, number 10, Arkansas. I don't know, man, Arkansas. Mm. Maybe they were looking ahead to this game. They probably were. At AM, AM is favored by two and a half. I do not trust AM to score
1: enough to cover that. So I have to take Arkansas, even if I didn't like what I saw last week.
3: I'm with you there, and I like it, though. Arkansas has played some good games already. They have some good wins. AM with a, with a loss they're frustrated with, a, a good win against Miami, but still, Arkansas is confident they can score. AM is not. And for that reason alone, I'll take Arkansas. All right, number seven, USC. Lincoln Riley's got it going at Oregon State, favored by six and a half. This feels
1: super ripe for a USC's been rolling and haven't been punched in the mouth yet.
3: This is total gut. I'm going to take Oregon State here. I like Oregon State. This is a nod to one of my friends, Parker, uh, his family, a bunch of Oregon State legacies. He's always telling me about them and what's going on. But they have a lot of good wins already this season. They're battle-tested. Look, Lincoln Riley's got that offense rolling already. They're not going to go undefeated this year. They're not. And again, like this is not the Napier, right? Like we talked about, Lincoln Riley comes into USC. They have talent immediately. Their offense is way better because he is an offensive guru. Napier comes into Florida. He takes the pieces we have. He's working on it. But we'll see what they're made up here as a team, uh, ranked seventh on the road. All right, number five Clemson favored by only seven and a half at number twenty one, Wake Forest. A true testament to how far Wake Forest is. Yeah, has come they're
1: frisky there. this year. They were in a kind of a battle last week. I still feel like Clemson's gonna be able to get it done against them. I think that defensive line controls that slow mesh a little bit, and they're able to win by
3: just about that. Yeah, Clemson's offense still just a huge question mark. Just cannot get it going. All right, Daytona Steve, I'm going to go with Clemson too. Daytona Steve comes back here. You know, what can you do? He says, you just have to keep getting back on the horse. You got to keep wagering. And he said, hopefully the, the fans of the pot are feeling it for him. They feel some empathy. And uh, his parlay this week is going to be the Little Peyton parlay, Allen, which is appropriately named. And here's what he's got. He's got Baylor on the money line over Iowa State. He has Tennessee with the points at 10.5 versus Florida. So he favored favor by 10.5. He has Oregon over Washington state favored by six and a half was a line. He got Oklahoma by 13 over Kansas state USC over Oregon state at minus seven. And then Utah with a money line at Arizona state. So taking a safer bet there with Utah as the anchor, the odds of that parlay are 30 to one. And this time he has a lot of picks that are similar to us, but still several that are different. We're going to see how he does this week. All right. Other items from you, Alan.
1: I don't think so. I I'm really hoping Florida steals one from Tennessee to break their hearts again. Cause we tend to do this even when we're not the better team. Have a little magic, a little heave to cleave or greer to Callaway, just some some tough moments. Even Treon Harris had a comeback win. So Florida
3: tends to have the mojo. So maybe if they're up early, Tennessee starts to crumble a little bit. We'll see. It's true. We've inflicted so much pain upon their fan base. And as you all know by now, I love Tennessee. I love Knoxville. I love the whole weekend experience. I love how much their fans care. I love that game day is going to be here. I love everything about this game from a Tennessee fan's perspective. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm a Florida fan, and we're just not heading in there with any kind of momentum or steam. This game, which I felt like was going to be so exciting after the Utah win, now feels like I'm just going up there to get to get beat but to enjoy the weekend in the mountains. I hope that's not true. I hope what you just said is true. And we inflict pain upon them again, even though I love them, even though I love how much they love football. I know Napier mentioned that so many of his own family members are Tennessee fans from being up there in the area. Uh, So I'm sure he would love not to lose and hear about that for a long time, given Tennessee's record against Florida. Uh, But either way, enjoy the weekend. If you're going to be at the game, enjoy the weekend. If you're not going to be at the game, and we can all certainly hope that Florida pulls off this upset. Uh, it's a lot more fun to do the podcast after a win than a loss, especially with one over Tennessee. And I know little Peyton is uh, going to be very upset if he doesn't get a win. So as always, Alan, it's great to do this podcast with you. No matter how busy our weeks get, it's just great to be sharing the studio with you. Amen, brother. We'll see you guys next week.
2: find a center near you that's unifydhealing.com slash blue wire no material or testimonials on the unified healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new health care regimen including ee system